And then join us Tuesday night at 9 for Mankind, Ida B. Wells' battle to uncover the truth. Wells was born to a slave to parents on a Mississippi plantation during the Civil War. Shim Mertz is a powerful investigative journalist and advocate for the right to vote for women and black Americans. That's Humankind, Tuesday night from 9 to 10 on WAMU 88.5. And that's it. That's all for me. I'm Jeffrey James. Thanks for who you are and what you bring to the world. This is WAMU 88.5 Washington and WRAU 88.3 Ocean City. The big broadcast is up next at 7 o'clock. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight being the birthday of Edgar Allan Poe, we've got radio adaptations of four of the master's short stories, three from the NBC University Theater and one from the series The Weird Circle. A snake figures in one of them, the cask of Amontillado, and, by coincidence, dozens of rattlers appear in an episode of the series, Mark Trail. And on My Favorite Husband, Lucille Ball appears to be pregnant at a time when you couldn't say pregnant on the air. Wild Bill Hickok shows up on Gunsmoke, a milk burglar on Dragnet, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me's Bill Curtis tells us the story of one of the most famous and infamous voices of World War II, Tokyo Rose. There's lots in store, so even if you're doing the dishes and can't kick back and relax just yet, you can still free your mind of all the worries and concerns of the week just past and resolve not to give a thought to what may crop up beginning tomorrow. Then, you can listen to the follow-up to last week's adventure from the man with the action-packed expense account. Remember, there was a hanging mystery in that episode... What happened to all those jewels? We'll find out in The Wayward Diamonds Matter from September 14th, 1958, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Peter Hanley at Western Maritime and Property. Oh, yeah, Mr. Hanley. I found this message to call you. You're still in town at the Beverly Hilton. Yes, that's right. I thought you'd be back in Hartford by now. When I can enjoy a spot like this on expense account? What? This California weather, this swimming pool here at the hotel? Now, wait. No, 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 wait. You say on expense account? Why, sure. Dollar, you cleared up that matter for us. You proved conclusively that Randolph Merrill did not lose his yacht, that the explosion and the sinking were fake. That's right. And incidentally, as you anticipated, the yacht was found in a small Mexican seaport, all ready to be rebuilt and repainted to thoroughly disguise it. Good. Now, Mr. Hanley... Yeah, well, by the way, in spite of his earlier vindictiveness, Merrill has decided to plead guilty and throw himself on the mercy of the court. Has he signed a confession? Uh, well, no. Then I'll bet he changes his tune by the time he goes to trial. Oh? Sure, that's an old trick to slow things up, gain time. Are you having Mrs. Merrill held as an accessory? Well, Merrill has made and signed a statement completely clearing you, so to hold her now would only complicate matters. Hanley, either you haven't yet read my expense account report, no, I or I yet. forgot to, or I forgot to tell you what tipped me off that that bear was trying to pull something on us. Oh, what was it, Mr. Dollar? Her jewels that you'd insured for a hundred thousand dollars. Oh no. Oh yes, Hanley. That jewelry Mrs. Merrill showed us was fake, oh, paste. Right. Uh, 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 you, uh, you still think I ought to go back to Hartford? No, 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 
found out where the real jewels are. Uh, can you come down to the office, Mr. Dollar, right away? Sure, if you like. No, 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 no. I'll drive out there to your hotel. Whatever you say. Yes, I'll drive out there. I'll, I'll be there right away. Scotch and soda be all right? Yeah, what? You uh, suddenly sound as though you could use a drink. <laughs> Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account, America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Western Maritime and Property Insurance Company, Los Angeles, California. Following is the kind of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Wayward Diamonds matter. Expense account item one, two dollars and a quarter for drinks in my room at the Beverly Hilton. By the time room service had delivered them, collected the tip and left, Peter Hanley arrived. Yeah, come in. I make no bones about it, Mr. Dollar. I had completely forgotten about those jewels of Mrs. Merrill. Yeah, well, I can't say that I blame you. We were so intent on exposing the so-called sinking of that yacht. Exactly. All right, all right. Relax. Here, come on now. Sit down and relax while we map out a plan of action. Thank you. After you hung up, I suddenly remembered that you had mentioned the fact that those jewels were fake to Mrs. Merrill herself. Yeah, that's right. All right. Well, well how did you know that they were fakes, Mr. Dollar? You remember when we sat in their living room out in Westwood while they gave us that cock and bull story about the yacht going down? Yes, yes, I remember. All right. She handed me the jewels to look at. I kind of absent-mindedly dragged one of the so-called diamonds across the glass top of the coffee table and realized it didn't scratch it. Oh. Now, did any of the others, which proved they weren't diamonds at all, but some kind of imitations? Look, why, why kid about it, Hanley? Up to that point, they'd had me believing their story about losing that yacht. You weren't alone, Dollar. You weren't alone. But now I suppose we'd better call in the police about that jewelry. Why the police? Well, to, 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 to see if they can find the original. Now, look, look. The Merrills are a clever pair. They proved that when they almost got away with a $150,000 claim against you for a boat that didn't sink after all. Very true, Dollar. Very true. So you can be pretty sure they didn't take the diamonds out of that jewelry and just hand them over to some fence around here. Yes, you're right. Later, I suppose, she figured to lose the fakes, have them stolen, then claim the insurance. Yeah, probably. If we hadn't nabbed the old man for the yacht fraud. You say she hasn't been held? No. But I see now that we she should have been, in spite of her husband's statement that she was completely innocent of any complicity in the whole scheme. Yeah, yeah I think she should have. You know, it's going to take a lot of money to defend him. And with him in the clink, she's the logical one to raise it. With the diamonds. The real diamonds. Uh-huh, that's my guess. Very well, then. I'll go over to police headquarters right away, charge her with fraud. You know, because of the diamonds themselves, and see that she is held until she tells us where we can recover them. Hadn't you better get evidence of fraud first? Well, the mere fact that she substituted paste for the real diamonds in that jewelry, darling. Well, a lot of people do that. Never wear the real stuff in public unless they have a lot of guards around. Well, even no, so... It... No, Hanley. You've got to prove that she's actually got rid of the real ones. Or tries to. You see, I don't think she's had a chance to yet. Why not? No, no, listen. I'm running up a nice fat item for you on my expense account. What kind of an item? Well, so far it only amounts to $100 and $150. What for? Fee to a private detective agency. Somebody to tailor 24 hours a day. In the hope of finding out what she's doing with the genuine stones? More important, to find out how she'll try to dispose of them. 
But you may have done that some time ago. I doubt it. Why? It's only recently they've needed dough. Granted. They had two plans. The phony sinking of their yacht, and later, if that worked, a phony loss of their phony diamonds. But why later? Well, to run them both together would look suspicious. What's more, apparently saving the jewels made the yacht accident look legitimate. Yes, I suppose so. Sure. And remember this. She made a big thing of having saved her jewelry. When we still believed the wreck was legitimate. That's right. She made a big point of displaying those phonies to us because she wanted to be sure we'd not only see them, but believe they were the originals. That we'd be witness to the fact she still had them. Yes, I see. But she must recall that you finally recognized them as Pace. Yeah, not like you and I almost forgot about it, simply because they had nothing directly to do with the matters at hand. Yeah, and she may think that we have forgotten. I mean, hmm? I doubt it. The point is, now she needs money. He saw to it that she stayed free to raise it. And the diamonds are probably her only way of getting it. Which is why I put a detective on her. Oh, excuse me. Johnny Dollar. Yeah? What? Well, how did... Yeah. Uh, well, look, I'll be right over. What is it, Dollar? Oh, that detective I was talking about has just lost his job. I don't understand. He just came to... Came too. Yeah, at the home of Mrs. Merrill. He, he's in her home? Yes, but she isn't. She's gone. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Wayward Diamonds Matter. In separate cars, I still had my rental job. Pete Hanley, the insurance man, and I drove out to Westwood, just beyond Beverly Hills. You're sure that detective was here at the Merrill home when he called you? Well, that's what he said. But if he was supposed to simply oh, tail... Come on, come on. Mr. Dollar? Yeah, that's right. And I take it you're Sam Benjamin. Holy smoke, what happened to you? Where's Mrs. Merrill? Well, like I told you on the phone, Mr. Dollar, she's gone. Any idea where? Oh, sir. Hey, you mind if I sit down? I don't feel so good. No, no, go ahead. Go on, sit down. All right, you all set? Yeah. Now, what happened? Well, I, I was walking up and down the street. Huh? You know, real casual, so it's not the Rosno You've speaking. been walking up and down in front of this house all morning. Oh, yeah, all morning. But like I say, real casual, so Where not... did you ever learn to be a detective? Some correspondence course? Oh, now, look, Dolly, you shouldn't talk like that. I resent it. Okay, all right, go ahead and resent it. But prowling up and down in front of the house... Well, my brother was a very good detective Your agency. brother? Yeah, and if he didn't think I was a good operator, okay, he wouldn't... Okay, all right, what happened? Well, <clears throat> I see it come out the back door. You know, Mr. Merrill? Wow. And I say go out and she opens up the garage. And where were you? Well, by good luck, I just happened to be in front of the driveway about then. So, real casual, I lean over and I start tying up my shoelace, yeah. you know, so she won't get suspicious of me, you see? Go on, go yeah. on. Well, well, she gets in the car and she gives me a look, but that's all. So, I figures me being so casual, no, she's not wise to what I'm doing around here, you know? Uh-huh. Mm. I bet she wasn't. But that's where you're wrong, Dollar, because somehow she must have figured it out, even with me being so casual. All right, all right, what happened? Yeah. Well, Dollar, she comes bound out of the garage so fast, I didn't have hardly and time to... And she casually ran you down. So I was casual about it. By the time I picked myself up and I find out I got any busted bones, she's down the street and around the corner. <sighs> what kind of a car was she driving? 
Uh, What was the license number? I don't know. You don't know? Well, then how will it happen so fast? Hey, look, whoever assigned you to this job ought to have I told you, my brother. And don't you go say anything about my brother. How did you get into this house? Well, my order said if she made any move, I was to phone you. I figured the nearest phone was in here. How did you get in? Well, I looked around to see when the back windows was open. You have any authority to enter this house? A warrant, maybe? No, but I have my orders to phone you just as soon as I could. Like I said, I figured the nearest phone. You want to see my orders? No, I don't. Well, look, see here. Now, you here. look. You can take those back to your office and shove them in your darling brother's face. Oh, now you, you said this. Just my brother. don't forget Should've to tell him you're fired. Oh, now look, Dollar. Anybody can make one little mistake. You right? asked me, you made them all. Now, go on. Get out of that chair and get out of here. Oh, now listen. Oh, and you... I uh, suppose that car that's parked right across the street, I suppose that's yours. Oh, sure. Oh, no. <laughs> so as if she made a move, I could follow without wasting no time. Real yeah. casual, huh? Sure. So she wouldn't know you were following her. Of course. All right, go on. Get out. Oh. Now, look, you wasn't really serious about, about you being fired. About... You bet I was. And you can tell your brother he and his agency are... Oh, go on. I'll, I'll settle with him later. Look, I- I'm not used to being treated like this. And when I told oh. my brother... Oh, brother. Oh, Hanny, it looks like I called in the wrong detective agency. I'm sorry. I'm afraid so. And I suppose you and I have no more right to be in this house than that idiot had, so perhaps we'd better leave. Yeah, sure. But not until you get on the phone and call the Department of Motor Vehicles. Oh? Find out from them the year, make, and model of Mrs. Nancy Merrill's car. Oh, better still, I can I can call my office. Your office? Yes, we issued the insurance on that car. Oh, good. Meantime, rather than just sit here and twiddle my thumbs, I'm going to have a look around. Uh, but, Dollar, if our simply being here is illegal... Uh... Will you stop worrying about it and get on that phone? In the bedroom, I found the jewel box, all right, but no sign of the jewels. However, in a desk, I did find a receipt. A receipted bill for some work done by a jeweler in Westwood Village. The amount of the bill? Yeah. It was more than enough to cover the substituting phonies for the diamonds in that jewelry. So when Hanley got the description of Nancy Merrill's car, I sent him over to West L.A. Police Headquarters to have my pals over there put out an APB on it. Then I hopped into my own car and headed for the jewelry store in Westwood. You know something? If I'd had any idea of what was waiting for me there, believe me, I'd never have gone alone. And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Wayward Diamonds Matter. Howard's Hillcrest Jewelry is a small but very exclusive shop on Wayburn Avenue in the Westwood Village section of Los Angeles. There, with the help of a receipt I'd found in Nancy Merrill's desk, I hoped to get on the track of the missing diamonds. I entered the snooty little shop and asked for the owner. I'm sorry, my good man, but Mr. Howard Howard is engaged with one of our important clients. Well, I'm here on rather important business. Well, if you care to leave your name and he wishes to see you, perhaps we shall call you. Ah, Mrs. Smythe, can you How delightful to see you again. And is it a Hmm. thing she likes, the jeweled color we selected for him? Such a lovely puppy. You know, he's the favorite of all my doggy friends. Just as you're my favorite. Maybe I'd better look for this Howard myself. Mrs. Mike Kenworthy, you have no idea how it brightens the day to have you drop in. Oops. Now, Wrong department. What can I show you today? Some little trinkets for your pussy cat, right? We have the perfectly savage things and real emeralds. No. No. But huh? you must, please. Oh. Nancy. Nancy, my dear. Yes, Howard. My pet, when I removed the genuine diamonds from your various pieces and replaced them with paste, it was with the distinct understanding. I know, dear, I know. But now I have to have the real stones put back. Why? 
As I understood, it was in order to have the fake gem stolen so that you could collect on the insurance. Oh, of course it was, of course. Not too loud, Nancy, please. Howard, our plan to claim that the yacht exploded failed. Randolph was in jail. He didn't involve you in that, I must say, rather foolish plot. Oh, no, but I have to go through the motions of getting him legal help. Excellent, my dear. I hope they keep him in jail. Howard. Randolph has stood in the way of our romance too long, my pet. Now, Howard, please, listen because of the yacht, they sent an insurance investigator out here. Investigator? Yes. A Mr. Johnny Dollar. Dollar? Good heavens. You know him? I know about him. I don't like this. And he found that these jewels I have now are paste. Now, you've got to put the original stones back so that when he sees them again, he'll think he was mistaken. Impossible. I've already disposed of them through various connections. Why did you show him those fakes? Well, I, I thought... I thought... You thought wrong, you stupid wench. Oh, how... Don't you see? You may have opened the door to investigation of some of the other favors I've been doing you and other customers to beat your insurance company. Oh, but I didn't think... Oh, of course you didn't. But if Dollar ever connects me with those imitations... Oh, dear. Oh, I know. And if they ever find out that the loss you faked here in the store that you collected so much on... Nancy, if they ever discover that that was faked, I'll go up for life thanks to you. Oh, no. I could kill you for being such a fool. Oh, but darling, I didn't know. I didn't realize... You don't know anything. Howard, please. Oh, shut up. Shut up and let me think. Or if there's anything, anything I can do... I said shut up! Howard... Will you be quiet? I've got to think this thing out. I knew from the beginning that that stupid trick with the yacht wouldn't work out. I told you so. But it fooled the police and the Coast Guard. How are we to know the insurance company would send that Johnny Dollar out here? Will you stop talking about him? We've got to figure our way out of this mess. Now, who else besides Dollar knows about the phony jewels I made up for you? No one, Howard. Except my husband, of course. Are you sure? But how could they know? Well, what if your husband talks? Oh, he doesn't dare. Don't you see? He's the one who sent me here to get the stones back. So the dollar can't prove he saw the imitation. And I tell you, I can't get them back. They're probably scattered all over the country by now. But don't you see? Unless we can show them to him. The real ones, I mean. Show them to this Johnny Dollar. No, no, no. It's impossible. So, that means only one thing, Nancy. Replacing the fakes with some other genuine stones? No, no. That would take months. No, Nancy, it means that I have to get rid of this man, Dollar. <gasps> that gun! That's right. You... you kill him? Yes, Nancy, I'll kill him if I can find him. I'll save you the trouble of looking for me, Howard. What? Dollar! And is that the gun you plan to kill me with? Yes, that's right. And I think I'd better kill you right now. Oh, Howard, darling, please. Oh, put that thing down, Howard. You're not going to shoot with customers out front. My private vault is just outside this back door of my office, Dollar, and it's open. In there, the sound of a shot won't be heard out front. No kidding. No kidding. All right, walk. Out that little door. Walk. Well, you don't really leave me much choice, do you? I'll open it carefully. No tricks. Tricks? With a gun on my back? All right, open the door. Go ahead. Oh, it seems stuck. Maybe you'd better open it. I said no tricks. You open it. Oh, Howard, you don't know what you're doing. You bet I do. Go ahead, Dollar. You may be sorry for this, you know. Will you quit stalling and open it? What have you say? Mr. Howard! Mr. Howard! Oh, no. What? Mr. Howard, there are 
Oh, Nancy, go on. Tell him I'm not to be disturbed. I'll see them in a few minutes. Oh, please, dear. Go ahead, go on. How are these men are from the police? The police? Well, bless Peter Hammond. Oh, no, you. Yes, I do. Dollar. Dollar? Are you all right? Those shots are. Johnny. Hiya, Pete. Huh? Oh, oh. Thank heavens. Thank heavens. Yeah. Looks like he's okay, Mr. Hanley. But, Dollar, what under the sun did you do to our friend Howard here? Well, we had a little argument, Sergeant. I'll tell you all about it, and then you can haul him off to the clinch. Oh? Hey, listen, if you've got something on Howard Howard, you'll be our friend for life. Sergeant, I've got plenty. Good, because, brother, we've been trying to catch up with him for years. Oh, incidentally, have you got a cell for Mrs. Merrill, too? You bet we have. <laughs> Expense account item two, fifty dollars in legal fees to make a deposition so I won't have to hang around for a trial or two or three. And I have a sneaking suspicion that Howard and Merrill and his wife are going to have a long, long time to think things over. Expense account total, including additional mileage on my rental car and the trip back to Hartford, $218 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a quiet little fishing pier on the coast of California. Only they call it the Pier of Death. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is written, produced, and directed by Jack Johnstone. Heard in our cast were Paula Winslow, Ben Wright, Jack Crucian, Jack Edwards, Marvin Miller, and Joseph Kearns. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. I guess when you're an insurance fraud investigator, you don't always meet the most admirable people. Like that couple in The Wayward Diamonds Matter from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in the last week of summer in 1958. And from the big broadcast here on WAMU 88.5. On this date in 1953, more than 40 million Americans, over a quarter of the population back then, were tuned to CBS television for an episode of I Love Lucy. The show was called Lucy Goes to the Hospital, and it was something novel in American broadcasting. The conflation of a real-life pregnancy, that of the show's star, Lucille Ball, with that of her fictitious TV character. According to the ever-reliable Wikipedia, the episode's estimated 44 million viewers eclipsed the 29 million who tuned in the next day to see the inauguration of President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Well, as longtime listeners to the big broadcast may remember, the precursor to Ms. Ball's giant TV classic was her radio series, My Favorite Husband 
written by many of the same people who created I Love Lucy. And in 1950, they had presaged that famous TV episode with a rumored pregnancy on that radio show. It was a little daring, because pregnancy was mostly a big no-no in American entertainment at that time. And to show you how things changed in just three years, the word pregnant isn't even used in the script you're about to hear. From May 21st, 1950, CBS and AFRTS, it's Lucille Ball starring in My Favorite Husband. It's time for My Favorite Husband starring Lucille Ball. Hello, everybody. Yes, it's the Gay Family series starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning as Liz and George Cooper. Two people who live together and like it. As we look in on the Coopers today, it's late afternoon, and George Cooper is just coming home from the bank. Hi, Liz, I'm home. Hi, George, how's my big blonde banker? Ah, <laughs> fine, honey. Give me a kiss. Mm. <laughs> oh, George, that was a good one. You must have kept it in the vault. <laughs> What'd you do today? Well, I had lunch with my mother. How nice. <laughs> How was the old, uh, dear? Oh, she's just fine. She said to say hello to you. Hello. She wanted you to go shopping with her tomorrow. Tomorrow? Mm -hmm. But, George, I can't go anywhere tomorrow. I'm having that bridge luncheon. You know that. Yeah, I know. That's what I told her. You told her? Well, sure. I said you were busy, and she wanted to know what you were doing, so I said you were having a bridge luncheon. I'm dead. What do you mean by that? What'd you have to tell her for? Now she'll want to come to it. Oh, she will not. She will, too. She always wants to come to whatever I'm having, no matter how small it is. Whenever Katie and I sit down for a cup of tea, I expect to see your mother come barging in wearing white organdy with her pinky cocked. <laughs> Oh, Liz, you're exaggerating. She doesn't care about your parties. She doesn't, huh? The last time I had a bridge party, she came over uninvited, appointed herself the world's greatest bridge authority, and picked all the pecans out of the mixed nuts. <laughs> She's only trying to give you a helping hand. Oh, yes, yes, that's the way she puts it, too. She likes to think of herself as a spare, in case any of the girls drop out. If she brings any more of that cheese spread she makes, we'll all drop out. Well, if you're going to be smart... Well, I don't mean to be, dear, honestly. It's just that she doesn't fit in. I'm having two tables of bridge. Eight's company and nine's a crowd. Well, you're probably getting all upset about nothing. Mother won't even want to come to your party. <laughs> My mother is one person who knows when she's not wanted. After all, you... I'll get it. Hello? George? How are you, baby? <laughs> Fine. How are you, Mother? Well, the old pecan picker didn't waste much time. <laughs> Could I speak to Liz, George? Uh, just a minute. She wants to talk to you, Liz. Sorry, senor. Your wife, you go to Mexico. <laughs> 
Now, cut that out. Here, answer the phone. Oh, George, you know she's going to angle for an invitation to my party. Oh, now, don't be so suspicious, Liz. Here. Hello. Liz, dear. How are you, Mother Cooper? Fine, dear, fine. How are you? Just fine. What's on your mind? Oh, nothing. Nothing at all. I just wanted to chat, dear. Oh. Uh, we should get together soon. Um, what are you doing tomorrow? Two o'clock and bring your own pecans. <laughs> Why, whatever are you talking about? I'm having a bridge luncheon tomorrow. A bridge luncheon? Mm. Well, this is a surprise. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. And you're inviting little old me? Uh-huh, unless little old you happens to have other little old plans. Oh, no. No, I haven't, and I just love to come. I was afraid you would. What? I was afraid you would have other plans and wouldn't be able to make it. <laughs> <laughs> Bells on. Bells yet. You sure I won't give away? <laughs> now, dear, you're sure I won't be in the way? No, but you might be a little noisy. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you want me to bring, dear? No, uh... Oh, yes, there is something you can bring. What's that? No cheese spread. <laughs> <laughs> but I already made it just for your lunch and I... Oh, I mean, uh, well, see you tomorrow, dear. Goodbye. Goodbye, Mother. What luck, George. A last-minute acceptance. Katie. Yes, Mrs. Cooper? Katie, I'm going to be too sick tomorrow morning to eat breakfast. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, what's going to be wrong? Well, I haven't decided yet. I'm also going to be too sick to have my bridge luncheon. Oh, but I've already made the chicken salad. Well, now, don't get excited, Katie. That's only propaganda for a certain nameless relative whose initials are Mother Cooper. <laughs> you mean you're really going to have the luncheon but let her think it's all? You hit the in-law right on the kibitzer. <laughs> You see, once I've convinced George I'm sick, he'll call his mother and tell her it's canceled. And after he leaves for the bank, I'll hop out of bed and have the luncheon. <laughs> oh, you're tricky. <laughs> All I have to figure out now is what's going to be wrong with me. Um, how about just a mysterious nagging headache with shooting pains in the legs? <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, and maybe just a slight, hacking, Camille-like cough. <laughs> You poor thing. Gee, I never thought the idea of feeling so bad could make me feel so good. Liz. Hey, Liz, it's 8 o'clock. Don't you think you ought to be getting up? Liz. <sighs> oh, Liz, what's the matter? Nothing. <laughs> oh, what's wrong? Oh, Liz, are you sick? Don't worry, I'll be a... Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> what is it? Shooting pains. Oh, there's another one. 
Oh, where does it hurt? Uh, it's hard to say. First it's my head. Oh, and then it's my legs. Oh, my stomach isn't happy at all. Oh. Well, I'd better call the doctor. No. Uh, no, no. I think it's just my, my nerves. All I need is a little rest and quiet. I'll spend the day in bed. Oh. Well, well okay, if you say so. Oh, uh, say, what about your bridge luncheon? Oh, my goodness. My bridge luncheon. Uh, uh, want me to phone Mother and tell her it's called off? Oh, yes, will you? Sure. Oh. I'll call your other guests, too. No, uh, no. I'll have Katie call them. Don't you waste your precious time. Okay, I'll go call Mother now. Fine, dear, fine. Katie. Yes, Mr. Cooper. Uh, I have to make a phone call. You'd better go in to Mrs. Cooper. She seems quite ill. Oh, dear, how dreadful. Well, I'll go right in. Oh. Oh. Never mind, Mrs. Cooper. Uh. It's me. Uh. Oh, hi, Katie. <laughs> you certainly convinced Mr. Cooper that you were sick. Yeah, George is calling his mother right now to tell her the luncheon is off. Mrs. Cooper, you're a genius. True, true, true. <laughs> oh, Katie, I'm starved. Just as soon as George leaves, fix me some orange juice, toast, hot cakes, eggs, bacon. Liz. And a bowl of warm milk and toast. Aw, <laughs> oh, poor little thing. Doesn't even want a decent breakfast. No. Oh. I told Mother about your canceling the luncheon. Oh. Yes, she said to tell you she was terribly sorry you weren't feeling well. No, I hope I didn't upset her day. Oh, no, no. She's coming over to be your nurse. No! Oh. Liz, what's the matter? I just had a relapse. Oh. Well, it's never wise to jump to conclusions, except, of course, in the case of Jell-O. And here's a wonderful warm-weather Jell-O treat called Raspberry Snow. Just dissolve one package of rich red raspberry Jell-O in one cup of hot water and add a cup of pineapple juice. When slightly thickened, add a dash of salt and one egg white. Then whip as directed on the package and pile in sherbet glasses to chill. It's a winner. Fluffy whipped raspberry jello, tangy with cool, refreshing pineapple juice. And say that raspberry jello tastes even better than ever, cause the flavor's been made even richer. Yes, even more fruit like and tempting. All six delicious jello flavors are chock full of locked in goodness that makes you think of the real ripe fruit strawberry, raspberry, cherry, orange, lemon, and lime. Guess that's why jello is America's favorite gelatin dessert. That name, Jell-O, is a registered trademark of General Foods. J-E-L-L-O. And now back to Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband. As we return to the Coopers, we find that Liz's pretended illness has hit a snag. A snag called Mother Cooper. Right now, George is just leaving for the bank. 
Oh, gee, honey, I hate to leave you, but oh. my mother will be here pretty soon. You'll be in good hands. Yeah, good hands. Well, bye, dear. Bye. I'll call you from the bank. Oh. Katie! Katie, isn't my breakfast ready yet? I'm bringing it in right now. Oh, good. For heaven's sake, take this bowl of warm milk and toast away. Well, you ate quite a bit. I couldn't help it. George fed me with a spoon. <laughs> he didn't. He did. He acted like a mother robin feeding its young. I was afraid if I opened my bill too wide, he'd put a worm in it. <laughs> Mrs. Cooper, tell me something. I've never had warm milk and toast. Uh, how does it taste? Like hot cotton and white shoe polish. <laughs> oh, this breakfast looks wonderful. That bacon smells so good. And these hot cakes are just dreamy. Oh, am I hungry? Oh, thar she blows. Mother Cooper, girl nurse. <laughs> Quick, I'll get this breakfast out of here. Oh, wait, at least give me one good smell. Oh, delicious. I'll let her in. Okay. Good morning, Katie. How's my sick girl? Uh, she's uh, uh, not so good. Well, I'm going right into her. Liz, dear, how are you feeling? Hello, Mother Cooper. Oh, now tell Mother just what seems to be the trouble. I don't know what it is, Mother Cooper. I seem to have picked up a little cold. A cold? Yeah. But George said on the phone your stomach was upset. Oh, well, uh, that too, I... I'm, uh, but I'm pretty sure it's just a cold. <laughs> so why don't you just go on home? Go home? Mm -hmm. When you're sick and need me? Why, that's what relatives are for. So that's it. <laughs> now, what can I do for you? Oh, nothing really. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Better stand back. These germs can jump a mile. <laughs> oh, Elizabeth, dear. You don't have to pretend with me. What do you mean? <laughs> Strange pains and queasy in the morning. Oh. <laughs> I was a mother once myself. Oh, now, just a minute. Oh, I understand you're wanting to keep it a secret, but not from Grandma. Oh, no. Look, I'm not what you think I am. Come on, tell Grandma. If you keep saying that, I will be sick. I have a cold. Of course you do, dear. Your nose isn't red and your eyes are bright. But if you say so, you have a cold. Look, Mother Cooper, I said I was sick because you... Or rather, I... I have a cold. <laughs> yes, dear, of course. Oh, when's it going to be? Oh. <laughs> Oh, I'll get it, dear. Thanks, but I can answer it. Now, Elizabeth, don't be naughty. You stay right under those covers and let me answer the phone for you. Hello? Hello, Liz. Uh, this is Mrs. Cooper, Sr. Elizabeth can't come to the phone right now. She's uh, a little under the weather. If that's Iris, I want to talk to her. 
Uh, this is Iris Atterbury. What's wrong? Well, Mrs. Atterbury, she says she has a cold. Mother Cooper, give me that phone. Says she has a cold? What do you mean? Well, confidentially, this house is soon going to hear the patter of little feet. <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> Mother Cooper, give me that phone. Hello, Iris. Yes, little mother. Now stop that. Mother Cooper is mistaken. All I have is a cold. You believe me, don't you? Of course I do, girl. Well, that's better. Tell me, Liz. What do you want, a boy cold or a girl cold? <laughs> oh, Iris, not you too. Oh, Liz, I can't tell you how thrilled I am. I know how you and George have always wanted a cold. <laughs> oh, what's the use? Look, if you won't believe me, will you at least do me a favor? Of course, girl. What is it? Call up the rest of the girls and tell them the luncheon is off. Well, don't worry. I'll tell them. Oh, I can hardly wait. Now, listen here, Iris Atterbury. Don't you worry about a thing, Mommy. Iris, Wait. Oh, she hung up. I hope you're satisfied. You ruined everything. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll have to learn to expect this crying for no good reason. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think you could eat a little something now? <laughs> well, I am sort of hungry. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's a good girl. You've got to keep up your strength. Mm. Remember, from now on, you're eating for two. <laughs> so far, I haven't been able to eat for one. <laughs> well, we'll change that right away. I'll go out and fix something nice and nourishing. Uh, what would you say to a big bowl of toast and warm milk? <sighs> <laughs> Did you want to see me, Mr. Atterbury? Yes, I did, boy. Come in and sit down. Have a cigar. Oh, thanks. Oh, that's all right, boy. You'll be giving me one soon, I guess. <laughs> Congratulations, boy. What for? Oh, now, let's not be blasé. It isn't every day that you become a father. Oh, that's true. It isn't every day that I become a... A father? Oh, yes, boy. Liz just told Iris a few minutes ago. She's going to be a mother. A mother? Yes, she's expecting a baby. A baby? You've got the sequence. Father, mother, baby. Gosh, I, I better call Liz. She knows about it. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be a father. No, no, no. Sit down, boy. Okay. It's easier if you use a chair. Oh. <laughs> Me, a father. <laughs> Here, Mr. Atterbury, have a cigar. Oh, thanks. Thanks, boy. Just happens to be my brand. <laughs> well, that's right. You, you gave it to me, didn't you? Oh, gosh, I'm so nervous. I, I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, I understand, boy. This is a big event. I can't tell you how pleased I am. Here, have a cigar. 
Oh, wait, I, I got a new one. This one's coming unraveled. <laughs> Gee, I, I can't get used to the idea. <laughs> now, George, I've been thinking, with all this additional expense, we'll have to do something about a raise for you. A raise, sir? Yes, yes. After all, if you and Liz are going to have a baby, there'll have to be some changes. Change it all. <laughs> I like that one, Daniel. <laughs> uh, gee, that's, that's awfully nice of you, Mr. Atterbury. I can certainly use some extra money. Yes, well, why don't you take the afternoon off and go home and be with Liz, Father? Oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> and I'll go with you. You will? Certainly. After all, I'm the child's godfather. And on the way over, we'll stop and get the boys some toys. Now, uh, let's see... Uh, a baseball bat, some boxing gloves, an air rifle, and, and a little chemistry set. Oh, that, that's a swell idea, Mr. Atterbury. Oh, gee, I can, I, I can hardly wait to see Liz. Oh, gosh, I'm going to be a baby. I, I mean, a father. <laughs> Mother Cooper, I feel fine. Honestly, I do. I'll be perfectly all right, so why don't you go home? Oh, we're cross, aren't we? Yes. Well, that's understandable. After all, it's our first one. No, it isn't. I've had a cold before. Oh, you're stubborn. Tell me, Elizabeth, what are you going to call the baby? Virus. <laughs> If it's a girl, I won't be unhappy if you want to name her after me. Oh, I don't think I'd ever name a little girl Budinsky Cooper. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter what you say, Elizabeth. You can't make me mad. Mother Cooper, I was hoping I wouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to tell you the whole truth about this sick routine. Yes, dear. You see, I had this bridge luncheon planned. Yes, dear. And then you called and you wanted... Where's the little mother? Iris, the luncheon's called off. Well, I know it is, girl, but we all came over anyway. The rest of the girls are out in the car. What for? We're giving you a baby shower. Oh, no. Oh, a shower. Oh, how sweet. I'll go out and tell the other girls to come in. Iris, wait. Hold it. Huh? Sit down. You too, Mother Cooper. I want to tell you something. Yes, sir? I am not going to have a baby. Yes, dear. Of course not, girl. I mean it. I'm not. Not, 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 not. Come well, yes. girl. Congratulations. Oh, honey, why didn't you tell me? What have they done? Put this in skywriting? <laughs> oh, Liz, you should be lying down. Stand back, everyone. Give her air. Somebody go get some boiling water. Not yet, George. Not yet. Oh. And don't hold your breath. Look, everybody, please listen to me. Oh, here, Liz. We bought some toys for the little fellow. 
fella. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, ball bat, boxing gloves, yeah. and look at this, a little chemistry set. Look, please, somebody listen to me. I'm not going to Liz, have a... Liz, George is so excited he forgot to tell you. Because of the baby, I'm giving him a raise of $50 a month. Oh! Uh, uh, that's, that's, well, now, maybe you're right, Liz. That isn't enough. I'll make it a hundred a month. Oh, oh, I'm going to be a grandmother. I'm going to be a godfather. I'm going to be a godmother. I'm going to be a father. I pass. Now, wait a minute. We're rushing Liz on this. After all, there's a long time to wait yet. You can say that again. <laughs> we'll be patient. Well, enjoy yourself. It's earlier than you think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, I'll just put that $100 a month in the bank under the baby's name. Just think, Liz, when our baby is born, he'll be worth hundreds of dollars. Maybe thousands. <laughs> What? In fact, George, don't be surprised if I give birth to a millionaire. You have been listening to My Favorite Husband, starring Lucille Ball with Richard Denning, and based on characters created by Isabel Scott Rorick. Tonight's transcribed program was produced and directed by Jess Oppenheimer, who wrote the script with Madeline Pugh and Bob Carroll, Jr. Original music was composed by Marlon Skiles and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. The part of Katie, the maid, was played by Ruth Parrott. Be sure to listen to Lucille Ball in My Favorite Husband again next week, presented by... J-E-L-L Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. Oh, the big red letters stand for the Jell-O family. That's Jell-O. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O pudding. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O pudding. Yum, yum, yum. Jell-O pudding. Jell-O pudding. Jell-O pudding. Jell-O pudding. Lucille Ball, in radio's proto-I Love Lucy, the series My Favorite Husband from the spring of 1950. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Tonight marks one of those little anniversaries that deserve to be remembered, partly because they're just plain interesting, but even more because they help tell us who we are as Americans. Forty-two years ago today, on the eve of his leaving office, President Gerald Ford issued a pardon for only the seventh person ever convicted of treason in the United States, Iva Toguri Dakino. Hers was one of the most listened to and one of the most controversial voices in old-time radio. She called herself Orphan Anne, but she was one of the women whom Americans serving in the Pacific Theater in World War II dubbed Tokyo Rose. She was mostly a disc jockey who played American popular music as part of the Japanese propaganda broadcasts to those American servicemen and women. Let's hear just a bit of her on the air. 
Hello, you fighting orphans of the Pacific. How's tricks? This is after her weekend, Annie, back on the air strictly under urine hours. Reception okay? Well, it better be because this is all we quest night. And I've got a pretty nice program for my favorite little family, the wandering boneheads of the Pacific Islands. The first request is made by none other than the boss. And guess what? You want Bonnie Baker. And my resistance is low. Mom. What taste you have, sir, she said. A second request is sent in by a roaming bonehead of an orphan, uh, request number 29. He wants Tony Martin, of all people, to help him forget the mosquitoes and dirty rifles. Well, you know, obliging Annie, Tony Martin, and now it can be told. This is Monday, wash day for some, also cleaning for some, and for the others, just another day to play. Let's all get together and forget those wash day blues. Here's Kay Kaiser, Sally Mason, and all the playmates, so come join the parade, you boneheads. According to Union Hours, we all through today. We close up another chapter of Sweet Propaganda on the forum of Music for You. For my dear little orphans wandering in the Pacific. There are plenty of non-humanists coming around the corner, so I'll be seeing you tomorrow. But in the meanwhile, always remember to be good and so... Goodbye now. Goodbye now. Goodbye. I thought the party was the time. I spent the evening forgetting the time. I can't remember. Oh, now goodbye. Goodbye now. There are several reasons the American-born Ms. D'Aquino was finally granted a pardon, and one of them might well have been a documentary that was written and produced for CBS TV and WGN Radio in Chicago by a man well-known to WAMU listeners. As the TV networks like to say nowadays, it's our own Bill Curtis, one of the stars of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, heard here every Saturday and Sunday at 7 a.m., and again on Saturday evenings at 7. Bill, welcome to the big broadcast. Thank you, Murray. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, you mentioned both ends of my career, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and then very early on, uh, to Tokyo Rose. Briefly, just tell us the story of Tokyo Rose, or rather, Iva Toguri Dakino. Yes. Well, a, a couple of titles. One, the most interesting story you will ever hear, or two, the most unlucky woman or life you will ever hear about. Um, she was a, a young woman who had just graduated from UCLA when her mother's sister uh, became ill in uh, Tokyo. So they sent Iva, nice graduation present, and, uh, you know, she was uh, young and pretty and uh, pert, as they say, full of energy, and she was looking forward to it. We should specify she was born here, right? She was an American citizen. Absolutely. Uh, born on the 4th of July. Uh, she gets to Tokyo, um, does well with the family, although the food was a little different, and she struggled with that. 
and she decides, well, maybe uh, in communication with her father, maybe I better go home because the winds of war, the storm clouds were uh, building. So she goes down to uh, get a pass uh, with the State Department, uh, their office there, and they say, well, you know, um, we're not going to grant it right now. We've got to clear it in Washington because your citizenship is in doubt. Well, it was not in doubt. She was a U.S. citizen, but she was Nisi. She was first-generation uh, Japanese-American. So um, that was the first big problem for her in what would be a string of uh, what, you know, the, the sins of Job are suddenly falling on her. Oh, boy. She had to uh, use her skill as someone who learned English or knew English to get a job. Well, first job was at a newspaper. Then she moved up to Radio Tokyo. Her radio name was Orphan Anne. And it was not uh, Tokyo Rose. There was never a program or a personality on Radio Tokyo, any of the broadcasts named Tokyo Rose. Mm -hmm. That was a creation like Kilroy was here of the GIs in the Pacific. There grew within the uh, programming an idea that the Japanese had of uh, creating a POW program that would theoretically be free of propaganda to build up an audience among the troops uh, with popular music and, and also messages to uh, from POWs in, in prisons uh, in Japan to their relatives to the States. It was called the Zero Hour. This is the Zero Hour calling in the Pacific. And for the next 75 minutes, we're going to take you through music as you like it. Sweet and harsh and otherwise. News from all over the world and a thought for the day. Sometimes even two thoughts for the day. First, let's have the fighting news for the fighting men. And incidentally, there were 25 women, roughly, uh, who were on the air. None of them were called Tokyo Rose. Uh, but they handled the the tough propaganda. And there was never any real propaganda on the zero hour. Right, right. Everybody was wanting to find two people in the after the war when the first Americans uh, arrived. One was Tokyo Rose, and the other was Tojo. A couple reporters, she always blames the press for her problems now. Uh, Clark Lee, who was a dashing um, uh, Clark Gable-esque uh, foreign correspondent for UPI, and uh, a buddy, Harry Brundage, who wrote for the Nashville Tennessean, uh, looked and looked and looked and uh, finally followed the trail to Iva, and they did an interview. And they said, just tell us the story. And and she was, uh, she acted uh, ebullient, uh, happy. She didn't think anything. She was innocent. And so they ran a, a story, uh, headlines, uh, Tokyo Rose, who sold out her country for $6 a month. And uh, that's when her problems really started. The media had a big role in this. And the then famous, now maybe more infamous, columnist Walter Winchell had a role in this, didn't he? Big role. Uh, he was the most listened to and probably the most powerful journalist uh, in the country 
at the time. And he would come on and, uh, hello, America. Mr. and Mrs. North America and all you ships at sea, right? All the ships at sea. And um, he, he adopted a headline for Tokyo Rose, which is pretty obvious, and uh, that said, uh, Tokyo, can you believe it, Tokyo Rose, who broadcast, uh, you know, uh, against our troops, is coming back to the States. Ah, but you five-star mothers will never see your sons come back to the States, will you? And uh, it's pretty effective. Oh, gosh. All of a sudden, politics took over from the United States. Uh, Harry Truman was under fire for being soft on communism and spying, and sent Ramsey Clark, uh, Sr., over to Tokyo, or his uh, assistants, the old Justice Department, getting uh, into action. And uh, they ran their own investigation, and lo and behold, they find two of the employees, uh, engineers and producers, who would testify that they were in the studio looking through the glass when Iva said, quote, um, your ships are at the bottom of the ocean, following one of the, uh, like the Coral Sea or one of the battles, uh, which they felt were, were treasonous comments and would fit in the charge uh, of uh, the Constitution. What is, you need uh, two uh, witnesses to an overt act. And so they said, okay, let's uh, charge her, let's bring her back. Rose, whose enemy propaganda broadcast supplied laughs for Pacific GIs, American-born Eva Toguri, facing possible treason trial, questioned by a naval intelligence officer. Well, uh, where were you born? In Los Angeles, California. I see. Did you go to school in Los Angeles? Uh, I went to Compton Junior High School. Compton. Now, how long ago did you come back to Japan? Uh, four years ago. Four years ago. Well, are you glad the war is over? Yes, I am. I think we all are. She was really railroaded, it seems, and didn't a couple of the witnesses, maybe that producer and the other, admit that they'd actually perjured themselves? They did. Uh, there are so many uh, side tracks, uh, you know, that to fill out the real story, uh, you know, the uh, ought to follow the red herrings. Ron Yates, who was a Chicago Tribune reporter, goes to uh, Japan, probably covering another story, but he said, well, I'm going to look these guys up and see what their story is. And sure enough, they say, well, uh, you know, the FBI, uh, one sort of scared us and uh, threatened to bring charges against us. And then they gave us uh, $2,000 apiece, I believe, and gave us a new suit. And uh, Wayne Collins, who was uh, Iva's uh, defense attorney, uh, this really ticked him off, and he always referred to that. So it made them, and they got a free pass to the United States and uh, could tour back here until they had to testify. Uh, and th so ultimately, when uh, Ron talked to them, they recanted and they said, no, she's she's innocent. You know, we were um, pressured into giving false testimony and it's uh, we feel guilty and terrible about it. So um, there's a final proof. I hope there was something like redemption later in her life. What were, what were she lived to a ripe old age? What were her later years like? You know, it's funny because the the entire Japanese American community, certainly in Chicago, but this could be through the states, knew her story, 
and it was not widely written about, uh, but it's it's one of those things that it just by word of mouth. Oh, you know, she's innocent. Yeah, she's one of us, and she was really railroaded. And I think Hayakawa was one of uh, of those people. This was the the senator from California. Yes, Sashu Hayakawa. He goes to Ford uh, and wanted a favor. And Ford, on the last day of his presidency, pardoned her. And I was impressed by the fact that short, shortly before she died in 2006, she received an award from a World War II veterans group with a citation, and it paid tribute, I'm going to quote it here, to what they called her indomitable spirit, love of country, and the example of courage she has given her fellow Americans. And this is from somebody who was convicted of treason. <laughs> That's right? Right. I was there. She invited Wayne Collins Jr., who was uh, the son, uh, became a lawyer, of Wayne Collins, her lawyer, very close. And uh, she was a terribly loyal person, obviously. She didn't give up her citizenship. She invited me, and it, it was a plaque. And that's the way they felt. I never felt or, or uh, found a member of the armed services, primarily Navy, that said, oh, yeah, she's terrible. I listened to her, and she had all that propaganda. And they, they, they actually had their spirits lifted uh, by her broadcast. Former CBS newsman and anchor and current public radio sex symbol, and that's saying something. Bill Curtis of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, joining us by phone from Chicago. Bill, thanks so much. Thank you, Murray. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Douglas Bell are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. If you ever watched the HBO series Deadwood, you may remember the character of Charlie Utter, played by Dayton Callie. Well, there was a real Charlie Utter, and you'll hear the actor portraying the equally real Wild Bill Hickok refer to him toward the end of this episode called Hickok from July 25th, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Dodge City and to the territory on west. There's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. everything, Chester? Well, there might be more later when they finish sorting the mail. Hey, where's that telegram? 
Oh, what telegram? I thought I'd put it right on top. Let me take a look. Oh, yes. Here it is. Might be important. I will soon see. Well, it's from Bill Hickok. Up in Abilene? Yeah. Uh, what do you say, Mr. Dillon? Teeters and Gridler headed for Dodge. Keep them there, but don't arrest them until I get there with murder witness. Or I'll write Washington all I know about you. Signed, Hickok. Oh, then Mr. Hickok's coming here, huh? Well, that's what he says. Well, how do you recognize those two men, Mr. Dillon? I expect I'll recognize them all right. Oh, you know them. Yeah, we've met. Teeters and Gridler are gunmen, Chester. The kind who kill as easy as most men shake hands. Just about as often. Too bad you can't just put them in jail. Yeah. Well, we'll start meeting the trains. There's one in at noon, sir. Good. Then we'll meet it. talk to him, but not in a crowd like this. Yes, sir. You know, every time I see a train, I am just overpowered with the urge to travel. Oh? Where to? Anywhere. Anywhere but Kansas. <laughs> well, I don't think you'd like it back east any better. Why not? You just have the urge to come out west again. <laughs> I know you're kind. Mm, I suppose you're right, sir. But still, it'd be good to walk down a street that wasn't all heat and dust and that wasn't crowded with a lot of grimy men looking for trouble. And I wouldn't mind seeing some women, married women, with kids and parasols and... Wait a minute, Chester. There they are. Where? They just got off the end car. Those two headed for the depot there. One of them's tall? Yeah. That's Teeters in the black hat. The other's Gridler. Just step around the corner here and see which way they head. Yes, there they are. Yeah. Looks like they're going to the Dodge house. Now, let's follow them. Yep, that's where they're going, all right. Now, let's wait here. Let them get a room, and then I'll go talk to them. But if you can't arrest them... Then I'll just try to make them feel welcome to stay in Dodge. When do you think Mr. Hickok will get here? Oh, be a couple of days anyway, Chester. Uh, look, right now I want you to go back to the depot and ask the ticket agent to let me know if Teeters and Gridlers start to leave any time. You can describe them to him. All right, sir. Then go to the stage office. Yes, sir. And go to all the stables, too. If they rent or buy any horses, I want to know about it right away. I'll tell everybody. I'll tell them to keep quiet about it. I'll, uh, be back at the office later, huh? Right, sir. You, what can I do for you, Marshal? Two men came in here just a minute ago. One of them was tall, black hat. Well? 
Well, what, Marshal? You were here. Did you see them? Those were gunmen. I could tell. The tall one's Teeters and the other one's Griddler. Those are the names they gave you? Yes, but there'll be trouble if you try to arrest them here, Marshal. Can't you wait until they're outside in the street someplace? No. What if they're after you? I've got nothing to do with men like that, Marshal. There's no reason in the world that they... Now, just take it easy. They never heard of you, and I'm not going to arrest them. But since you're a good, helpful citizen, maybe you can tell me what room they're in. Certainly, Marshal, certainly. Number 25. Up the stairs and turn to your left. Thank you very much. You can put your gun away, Gridler. I just came for a little talk. And make your talk, Marshal. No, I ain't polite, Gridler. Let him in. Watch him better inside, anyway. Hello, Teeters. What's on your mind, Marshal? I'm just trying to think. Last time I saw you men was in, uh... Let me see, was it Tuscosa? Never mind all that, Marshal. Why are you here? No, I heard you were in town. I thought I'd drop by and say hello. News must travel pretty fast in Dodge. We ain't been here 15 minutes all told. Well, maybe he was expecting us, Griddle. I happened to be at the depot. I noticed you got off, so I followed you here. All right. But we're not wanted, Marshal. Matter of fact, a judge up in Abilene just turned us loose. Wasn't no witness to that killer. While Bill tried to frame us, but didn't work. Well, that just goes to show the law's fair to everybody, doesn't it? Why'd you come here, Marshal? Just to let you know that I'm still the law in Dodge and that I don't want any trouble here. With men of your sort, I always like to mention that. We're not looking for trouble. Good, good. And you're welcome to stay here as long as you like. That's a funny thing to tell us. It's an open town, Teeters. Yeah, sure, Marshal. Sure it is, yeah. And I'll treat you two just like anybody else. If you stay out of trouble, the town's yours. Anybody who starts trouble won't be us. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'll be going now, gentlemen. Oh, uh, there are some pretty sharp gamblers here. Don't let them take all of your money. Oh, don't you worry about us, Marshal. There was no way of figuring how long Teeters and Gridler might stay in Dodge. If they took a notion to do some gambling, it might be a week or two, or they might move on in an hour. That night, however, they were still in town, Buck and Farrow at the Oliver Ganser. Everything looked fine until Chester came into the office about 10 o'clock. They're fixing to leave, Mr. Dillon. First thing in the morning. Oh, how do you know? Jim Bunch at the stage office. He just told me they came in and paid their fare to Sharon Springs on the morning stage. Sharon Springs, huh? And then they're headed for Denver. Looks like it, sir. All right, Chester. Uh, go tell Jim that I'm going to be on that stage tomorrow, too. If he likes, I'll ride shotgun for him. One of the boys can have a little time off. I'll tell him, sir. But are you going all the way to Denver? I'll follow him all the way to San Francisco if necessary. 
You can tell Hickok that when he shows up. Too bad he won't be here before they leave. And it'll be another day before he can get here. But that won't be too far behind us. Uh, stage leaves at 8, right? Yes, sir. I'll be there to see you off, Mr. Dillon. Fine. We'll meet at the Dodge House for breakfast, if you like. All right, sir. The stage looks like it's all ready to go, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. I don't see Teeters and Griddler, though. They're not inside, are they? I don't think so. No, they're not here yet. Just about 8 o'clock. They should be here. Well, it doesn't matter, Chester. If they've changed their minds, it's all to the good anyway. Want me to go ask Jim Bunch if he's heard from him, Mr. Dillon? Uh, no, no. Let's just wait here. Oh, say, I forgot to tell you. Jim said the regular shotgun messenger has to go up to Sharon Springs anyway, but to thank you just the same. No, good. Chester. Yes, sir? Look up at the other end of the plaza there. Coming this way. Well, I declare. It's Sam. Yeah. Now what are they up to, I wonder? Well, they can't be taking the stage if they're horseback. No. Looks to me like they're fixed for a long ride, too. Sure does, Mr. Dillon. You're up early, Marshal. Yeah. So are you, Teeters. It's cooler in the morning. Uh, for traveling, it is. So long, Marshal. What's the matter? Did you lose all your money last night? Yeah. Next time we'll follow your advice. So long. Will we go after him? Uh, Chester, you stay here and explain things to Wild Bill. I'll be on their trail as soon as they're out of sight. I'll get my horse. You can tell Jim I won't be taking the stage. All right, sir. I'll leave as clear a trail for Hickok as I can. Yes, sir, I'll tell him. The second act of Gunsmoke. I did my best to stay out of Teeters and Griddler's sight. But if they had suspicions of being followed and were watching their back trail, they'd have known I was there, all right. The land was flat, and we frequently crossed great patches of powder-dried dirt that smoked the air with dust under the horses' feet. After an hour, they began to swing slowly north, and by noon it was clear that for some reason they were riding in a great half-circle. They'd left Dodge headed west, and sure enough, just after sundown, they rode back into town from the east. I waited until dark and came in. Put my horse up. The office was empty, so I walked up to Delmonico's where I found Doc having supper. Oh, Matt! Oh, sit down, sit down, sit down. Oh, thank you, Doc. <laughs> oh, you look hungry enough to even eat this food. <laughs> yeah, it's been a long time since breakfast, Doc. Yeah, a man ought to eat three meals regular, Matt. You get run down if you don't. <laughs> yeah, sure, Doc. 
Only sometimes you have to eat when you can. Oh, I told you have a hard day, man. <clears throat> yeah, I've been riding, Doc. Riding around in circles. Oh, is that what the government pays you for? Oh, I'd like to have your job. Right? <laughs> I wouldn't be too sure of that, Doc. It isn't always this easy. Well, I know, Matt. Chester told me. What happened to you? Did you lose them? No, I didn't lose them. Matter of fact, they're coming in here right now. Huh? What do you mean they're coming? Those two? Yeah. They're pretty hard-looking fellows. They are. Evening, Marshal. Oh, hello, Teeters. Griddler. Marshal. This is Dr. Adams, gentlemen. How are you? How are you, Doc? How are you? Hello. What's on your mind? You are, Marshal. What? That was you trailing us all day, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Why? <laughs> I didn't want you to get lost. That's a lie. But then let's say that I didn't want you to get into any trouble. You're going to tell us what it's all about, Marshal? Well, you're not exactly the most reputable citizens in Kansas. I just wanted to have an eye on you, that's all. You sure do. Because it's like I told you, you keep out of trouble and you're welcome to stay here. Just remember one thing, Marshal. There's two of us. And next time you follow us, you might not come back. <laughs> or taking chances like that's part of my job, Mr. Teeters. That's a poor job, then. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I think so, too. Come on, Teeters, let's get out of here. Yeah. Well, not very polite, are they? No, but they're smart. Smart enough to figure something's wrong anyway. Well, you think they might bolt, Matt? Uh, it depends on how smart they really are, Doc. Right now, they're so curious, they might stay around just to see what it's all about. Oh, Mr. Dillon? Oh, hello, Chester. Oh, Pull up a chair. Mm -hmm. Pull up a chair, Chester. I won't have time. Hey, we better get right over to the depot. Oh, why? What's happened? Well, sir, I saw them ride back into town. The first thing they did was go to the depot and ask about a train. Oh, were you there? No, sir. The agent came and told me, told me like he'd promised. The train goes at 7.30, doesn't it? Yes, sir. And it's just about that now. I've been looking everywhere for you. Uh, Doc, if that waiter ever does come around, tell him to hold a steak for me, will you? I might just be back for it. Uh, sure, Matt. Yes, sir. And good luck. Yeah, thanks, Doc. Come on, Chester. going to go on the train with him, Mr. Dillon? No. Hickok's sure to be here in the morning, Chester. If I can keep him off this train tonight, I doubt they'll try anything else till tomorrow. Yeah, but you can't arrest him. Yeah, I know. Well, then, I'll uh, just how face you... him off it, Chester. So keep your head up. Yes, sir. Now, there they are. Come on. You come just to say goodbye, Marshal? Not exactly, Titus. Oh? You, uh... You can take the train tomorrow, if you like, but, uh... Not this way. Why tomorrow? Well, I've got orders to keep you in sight till then. Orders from who? It doesn't matter. But you have your choice. You can have the run of Dodge tonight, or you can spend it in jail. I know you talk pretty loose for just one man, Marshal. 
Your friend there doesn't look like a gunman. Well, now, you can't always tell by looks, mister. I can. You said you didn't want trouble, Marshal, but you sure starting it. There won't be any trouble. You do what I tell you. If we don't, I'll kill the first one of you that moves for that train. You can die that way, Marshal. Maybe. But you won't both get on that train. Gridlock, you know me. You know I'll do it. We can still make it, Gridlock. No. It's not worth it. We can go tomorrow. All right. Marshal. Tomorrow it'll be different. Yeah, sure, sure. Tomorrow it'll be different. Chester and I met the noon train next day. But as I'd figured, Hickok didn't get off it. I questioned the man who rode the baggage car, and sure enough, Wild Bill and his witness had hidden out there the whole trip. As soon as the crowd left the depot, we walked down to the car. Crawled under it. Potted on the door on the other side. Who is it? It's Dylan, Bill. Open up. Oh, jump up, man. Come on, Chester. Oh, Matt, how are you? Oh, fine, Bill, fine. Oh, uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. Uh, how you doing, Mr. Uh, Chester? Sam, come over here. This is my witness, Sam Trimble. Howdy, Mr. Trimble. Mr. Trimble. Are you still here, Matt? Yeah, but we better move fast. Matt, that judge up at Abilene's crazy, but he's still the judge. And he says Trimble here has to identify Teeters and Gridler before I arrest him this time. But, Bill, they can't be tried twice for the same crime. I know that, Matt, but I'm after him for a second murder they did. I'd suggest we just go kill him. But I've been waiting a long time to see these two hung, and by glory, I'm going to do it. Yeah, you will, if you're lucky. Uh, tell me, Mr. Trimble, do these men know you on sight? Well, I'll tell you how it was, Marshal. I, I was in the stable where I worked. Over in Abilene, that is. And a fella come in for his horse, and I went to get it for him. I heard some shooting, and then two men ran right past me. I got a good look at them, all right. They just killed that fella, too. You mean you don't know Teeters and Gridler? I never heard of them, Matt. There's no pictures of them I know of, but he can identify them when he sees them. Yeah, sure, but what about them? Will they recognize you, Mr. Trouble? Gosh, I don't know, Marshal. I hope not. They'd kill me on sight, wouldn't they? I hadn't thought of that. Well, you just do what we tell you to, and you'll come to no harm, Trimble. Dylan and I are a fair match for those two. If they start any trouble, we'll be on them so fast they'll die on their feet. Taking a terrible chance. I, I hadn't thought of that. Easy, Trimble, easy. An hour from now, we'll have them in jail with their teeth pulled. I sure hope so, but how are you going to do it? Just go find them, that's all. As soon as we get them locked up, I'll buy you the biggest steak you ever ate, Trimble. Come on, let's go. I took Hickok and Trimble over to the Texas Trail, where we decided we'd wait while Chester located Teeters and Gridler. Then we'd just walk in on them and get it over with fast. I introduced the two men to Kitty, and we ordered a couple of drinks for Trimble, who was getting jumpier by the minute. <laughs> 
What are you two heroes doing? Getting this poor man drunk enough to fight him? <laughs> Not exactly, Miss Kitty. He just lacks faith in us, that's all. Uh-huh. I wouldn't have come if I'd thought about it. I, I sure would. Look, Trimble. It isn't often a man has both mine and Matt Dillon's guns behind him. You're as safe as you'd be in church. I don't go to church. Uh, here, Mr. Trimble, have another drink. Huh? Uh, I, I will in a minute. I'm going out back first. <laughs> Whatever you're up to, it's making him mighty nervous. Yeah. Well, I'll admit he usually leads a quieter life. He'll brag big, though, once he's back in Avalon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me, Bill, do you plan to stay in Abilene long? Oh, I don't know, Matt. Charlie Utter keeps talking to me about Deadwood. Oh, it's as dusty up in Deadwood as it is in Kansas. Yeah, I know, Miss Kitty, but Charlie thinks some of that dust is made of gold. Uh, hey, well, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. I'll go with you, Matt. All right, stay in here, everybody. Teeters and Riddler. I was just crossing the street and saw him run out of the alley there. All right, come on. There he is. Yeah, it's Trimble. What happened, Trimble? They shot me. I was going to run away. And he got scared and ran right into him. Yeah, we shouldn't have. Let him alone at all. They said they saw me with you, Mr. Hickok. They said that that's all they needed to know. And they shot me. Chester, go get the doctor. Hurry. Yes, sir. Tell me, Trimble. They were the men who killed that fellow in Abilene. You recognized them all right? No. No. I never saw these two before. It wasn't them. What? what? I knew I shouldn't have come. I I got killed for nothing. Tremble. Tremble. That's no use, Bill. Yeah. He got killed for nothing, all right. They must have figured he was a witness to some murder they did commit. Well, anyway, they'll hang for Trimble now. Let's find him before they get out of town, Matt. We'll find him even if they do. Hickok and I walked out of the alley and into the plaza. There were a couple of citizens who'd heard the shooting and had seen Teeters and Griddler run out of the alley. Told us that they'd gone into the Dodge house. And we followed from the look on the clerk's face as we went past him and up the stairs, I knew that they were in their room. When we reached it, Bill stood on one side of the door and I on the other. Think they'll fight, man? Well, let's ask them. I told you that follow was Peters. Well, we're crap sure. Shut up, I said. And it got us to the street on the line. Open the door. Throw your guns out. There's no use trying to fight. There's no use in hanging neither, Marshal. You can just take us the best way you can. No. Our chance hanging. We got off once. 
Certainly you get away from that dog. I've listened to you enough. I ain't facing Dylan and Hickcock both now. Hold your hands here, Peters, you shouldn't have... Hold it. Wait, Matt. Could be a trick. No, I don't think so, Bill. Look. On the floor there. Yeah, he's been hit all right. Expected this. Saved us doing it, maybe. Riddler lost his nerve. Blast him. Shooting was too good for these two. I wanted to see him hum. Well, things don't always work out, Bill. Well, they sure don't. Not lately, anyway. Matt, I think I'll go up to Deadwood with Charlie Otter right soon, after all. Maybe I can find me a little peace and quiet. Gunsmoke, transcribed under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John McIntyre, Lawrence Dabkin, John Daner, Joe Duvall, and Harry Bartell. Parley Bear is Chester, Georgia Ellis is Kitty, and Howard McNear is Doc. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Ah, a foreboding departure as Wild Bill sets off for Deadwood at the end of the episode named for him, Hickok, from Midsummer 1953 and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Douglas Bell and Kenny Pirog are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org or on Twitter at WAMU885. And do visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. You can think of our Dragnet episode tonight as a belated Christmas present. The denouement takes place on December 24th. You'll hear a really obscure bit of old slang, the bull horrors, defined by the Oxford Index as an irrational fear of the police. From November 24th, 1953, it's an episode called The Big Present from NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a burglary detail. In the past two months, a thief has broken into 18 markets. There's no lead to his whereabouts. 
No clue to his identity. Your job? Get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, December 14th. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of burglary detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Bernard. My name's Friday. We were on our way out of the office, and it was 8.05 a.m. when we got to Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. Sergeant Lindsey Simmons' office. Yeah? Well, did you give it to him? Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, what'd he say? Yeah. <laughs> When'd he come back? Uh-huh. Well, did he have it for you? Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll teach you not to go that route anymore. All right, Patrick. Tell the sergeant to call me when he gets back. Right. Oh, hi, Friday Smith. Oh, hi, Lindsay. Good morning, Sergeant. Just talking to Gene Patrick over at Highland Park. You know him? Yeah, I met him a couple of times. Picked up a youngster a couple of days ago on suspicion of burglary. Brought him into the office, and Patrick talked to him. Yeah. Well, he finally bought it that the kid didn't have anything to do with the thefts. He told him to go home. Uh-huh. Kid told Gene he didn't have the money to get home, so Gene gave him 20 cents. Kid swore he'd come in and pay it back. Did he? Yeah, he came in this morning, gave Patrick two dimes. Told him thanks for believing the story. Mm-hmm. Then Patrick got the kicker. Kid really did break into a house last night to get the money. Well, what's Patrick got to say about that? <laughs> Says the kid's honest in a sort of way. He did pay him back. Well, where's the youngster now? Got him over Highland Park Juvenile. I better call Gene. Maybe I can give him a hand. I got a couple of streetcar tokens I won't be using. Might like to have them. Huh? Oh, hold it. If I was you, I don't think I'd bring it up to him for a couple of days. Well, what can I do for you two? Well, Lindsay, we've been working on a string of burglaries. You maybe got the word on them. I don't think so. What's the story? Bunch of store burglaries. Papers that tagged them. The milk bottle jobs. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it seems Hartgrove was telling me something about them the other day. And where do we come in? Well, the way the jobs look, we've been thinking they maybe belong in your department instead of ours. How do you figure that? First off, the milk thing. What do you mean? Every job he's pulled, we found an empty milk bottle on the counter. Okay, what's that prove? Well, milk and kids go together. Sure, sort of milk and ulcers. Maybe a thief's got the bull horrors when he gets into the store. No, Lindsay, there's another thing. The way he prowls the places, all he takes is petty cash. Just a couple of bucks outside. Candy, cigarettes, nothing big. Some of the places he's gone into, you could open the safe with a pocket knife. And he hasn't even made a move toward him. Maybe he's a kleptomaniac. Got a lot of them on the books. Maybe that's the way he gets his kicks. Oh, it's a nice try, Lindsay. If you know anybody that can climb through a 14 by 10 inch hole, you trot him up and we'll talk to him. Okay, I haven't got the names on my desk, but you take a trip to Santa Anita, you'll meet a lot of them. Jockeys. You guys know we'll go along with you on this thing. Anything we can do, but until we're sure that there's a juvenile involved, there's nothing we can do. Anything turns up, we'll be sure to turn it over to you. Now, look, we're not trying to palm this thing off on you, Lindsay. We've had the stats office make so many runs on small adults that the cards are wearing out. It just seems that none of the leads we've been chasing come out anywhere. We figured that maybe you could come up with some answers for us. Well, it's a new one on me, Joe, this milk bet. I've heard of a couple of thieves that went for it, but I can't name you a juvenile offhand. I'll pass the word around the day watch, see what they can come up with. I'll leave a note for Hartgrove. He can pass it on the night watch. Well, appreciate anything you can do. No trouble. Been running you ragged on this, huh? It's pretty rough. It's just that we can't seem to be able to come up with anything that adds. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. Georgia Street Juvenile, Sergeant Simmons. Yeah. Yeah, they're here. Which one? Okay, hang on. For you, Joe, your office. Thank you. Friday talking. Yeah. Right away. What's the address? Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I got it. We'll leave right away. Who? Yeah, call him. Thanks. Come on, let's go. The milk bottle kid, he hit again. 
The call had come from Lieutenant Ginder in burglary. He told us that he'd just gotten a call from a storekeeper named Marty Derabertus. The man had called to report a burglary at his store at the corner of Jackson and Broadway Streets. Lieutenant Ginder told us that the crime lab had been notified and had dispatched a crew to investigate the premises for physical evidence. Frank and I left Georgia Street Juvenile and we drove over to Figueroa. Then we turned over onto Broadway. The store that had been broken into was a small Italian delicatessen on the southeast corner. By the time we got there, the crime lab crew had already arrived and was winding up their investigation. We walked into the place and we met with Ray Pinker. Hi, Joe. Frank. Ray. Hi, Ray. How's it going? The usual thing. Bottle of milk on the counter. You want to check it over? Yeah. Come on back here. Thief made his entrance back here at the rear of the store. There it is. Broke out the window pane. Yeah. Not very big, huh? It measures nine and a half by twelve and three quarters. Huh. No alarm on the window, huh? Yeah, you can see the wires here. Take a look. Oh, yeah. How come the alarm didn't go off? I talked to the owner. He said he's had trouble with the alarm system the last couple of weeks. Called the company and asked him to fix it. Mm -hmm. He thought it was okay. Guess there's something wrong someplace. Didn't work last night. What kind of alarm was it, Ray? Outside on the building. You know the kind. Yeah. What'd he take this time, Ray? Usual run of stuff. According to the owner, there are about four cartons of cigarettes missing, several boxes of candy. Can't be absolutely sure. So he's got to check his stock. Be better if you talk to him on that. Yeah, we will. We'll catch him later. Want to wait a minute? I'll check and see how the boys are doing on the prints. Have him check the counter in the milk bottle. All right, thanks, Ray. Be right back. Right. I don't wonder when we're going to blow the whistle on this guy. I don't know. Can't do it fast enough for me. Well, I'm with you. Hey, Joe. Hmm? Look at this. You know, I'd like to get a couple of those before we leave. What are you talking about? Salami, Joe. Those right there, the hard Italian kind. Mm -hmm. See, right there? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember last summer I was up in San Francisco. Yeah, I remember. Went up there to pick up a prisoner. Remember you were collecting days off? Yeah, I recall. I had a hundred of them coming. Yeah, <laughs> pretty funny. Anyway, I met Dan Shelley up there. You mean the Irish tenor? Yeah, he and I went down to Cookie's Bar for lunch. Cookie had some of this salami. Sliced it like paper. You could almost read through it. Oh, that's the way it's supposed to be. I know, Joe. Anyway, Cookie sliced up a bunch of it, served it with cold cracked crab. Boy, I never tasted anything so good in my life. Yeah, don't you ever read the newspaper through sliced salami? Yeah? Well, I never have. Have you? All the time. Just the funnies. Well, anyway, Faye's tried to find them for me. Salami like this. Brought home all kind of things, but she's never found the right kind. You know, they'd be hard enough to pound tax with them. She got them home. Boy, never forget old Cookie and that spread. <laughs> well, if you can get your mind off food for a minute, and I know that'll be tough, let's get on with this thing, shall we? Yeah. Sure got to buy some of these before we leave. <laughs> Just like Cookie had. Yep. Just finished with powder, Joe. Yeah. Nothing. Whoever it was drank the milk, he took the bottle out of the refrigeration compartment. Bottle sweated, and there isn't a print on it we can lift. That's well, too bad. None of them any place, huh? Nah, we've gone over the place from top to bottom. Till there, we can't find them. Well, that's not much help, is it? Came up with one thing. Maybe you can make something out of it. What's that? Outside the window in the back parking lot. Came up with an open package of cigarettes. Don't know if it belonged to the thief. Anything on it? No. Fog last night ruined any prints that were on it. Boys have got it if you want it. Yeah. Well, we take a look at it. Looks like everything's against us, huh? Another blank. Don't envy you guys trying to break this one. Most of the time there's a leak someplace. Somewhere along the line, the guy's going to make a mistake and not cover something. Yeah, we've been saying that for weeks. This is either the smartest thief I've ever seen or the luckiest. What's this make for him? Number 19. A lot of chances to take for nothing. He's not getting anything out of the jobs. Maybe he isn't, but we are. What? Headaches. <laughs> 9.38 a.m. We talked to the victim. He told us that as near as he could figure, there was approximately $4 stolen from the store. He went on to say that he'd ascertained that five cartons of cigarettes and several boxes of candy bars were taken. 
who was unable to tell us if any other merchandise was taken until he'd made a complete inventory. He went on to tell us that there was over $600 in the safe, but that as far as he could tell, there'd been no attempt to break into it. We made a canvas of the neighborhood and talked with the neighbors. None of them recalled having seen any suspicious people in the neighborhood the night before. None of them had seen any suspicious automobiles in the area. The one thing that was apparent was that the thief was working in a definite pattern. He worked only on Friday and Saturday nights, always between 8 p.m. and 12 midnight. Frank and I met with Captain Bernard, and it was decided that we would maintain a rolling stakeout in the area in which the suspect operated. Four other cars from Metro Reserves were assigned to work with us. For the next five nights, we worked without results. It was slow and tedious, but considering the lack of information on the thief, it was the only way we had left. We had to be on or near the scene when the thief struck again. Saturday night, December 19th, Frank and I met and drove out to the area. The streets were crowded with early Christmas shoppers. I'll sure be glad when it's over. Why? What's the matter? How many rooms in your apartment, Joe? Three. You know that. You've been there. Yeah. No, that won't be enough room. What are you talking about? Faye. What's Faye got to do with this? Hack, Joe. Real hack. Why? What's the matter? I got up this morning. I felt great. Faye's got breakfast on the table. All nice. A couple eggs. Little pig sausages. Nice, you know. Yeah. I come down to the table. She's got the food on. And I hit her with it. What, the food? No, Joe. I hit her with what I'm about to tell her. I tell her I'm going to have to work tonight. Uh-huh. You've worked every night this week. What's wrong with that? Well, that's the way I figure it, so I got a way out. You have, huh? Today is Faye's birthday. Well, you didn't tell me. It's not good to tell people, Joe. Oh, it isn't? No. Faye's over 30. Yeah. I kind of figured that. Don't you get it? I'm sorry, pal. You left me a couple of blocks back on this one. Look, Faye... I may never catch up. Faye's over 30, Joe. She's getting to the point where she's taken off years, see? How can you give a person a, a last birthday present? Yeah. I'd tell you about it. You're going to give her a present. Only now instead of 30, she's 29. You understand? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, no. But as long as you do, it's perfectly all right with me. Yeah. What about this morning? Well, I told her I was going to have to go to work. I got this present for her. Brand new deep fat fryer. Real good. What? All wrapped up. Deep fat fryer. All wrapped up with ribbon. Beautiful, shiny, beautiful. So you gave it to her. Did it do any good? Not a pound. You know what she does with it? Well, at this point, I wouldn't even want to guess. I'm serious, Joe. This may mean the end of my home. Go ahead. She doesn't even open it. Just puts it in the closet on the back porch. Doesn't even pull the paper apart to peek at what's in it. Real mad, Joe. She may not let me back in the house tonight. Well, you can apologize when you get home. I don't know, Joe. Faye's pretty sore. Didn't even open the present. Not Wait a even minute. a peek, huh? Listen. Yeah, tell where it's coming from? Yeah, sounds like up on 7th. Come on. Yeah, right here. Pull up. Come on. I'll take the front. All right. Hold it up there. Police officer, stop or I'll shoot. Frank, he's coming around your way. Okay. Take it easy. You go ahead and shoot. Go on and kill me. Go ahead and shoot me. It doesn't matter anymore. Go Everything on. all right? Yeah. Just a kid, Joe. Yeah, let's see. What are you doing in the store, son? What do you think I'm doing? He asked you a question, son. Pretty stupid. What do you think I was doing? How many stores you broken into, son? Figure it out for yourself. Look, what do you got a chip on your shoulder You're for? You're big guys. Don't give me a lot of conversation. Do what you want to do. All right, boy, you call it. Come on. Uh, 
11.50 p.m. We called the office and told them that we had a subject in custody and that we were taking him to Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. We put the boy in our car and we waited until a radio car arrived. We asked the officers to notify the owner of the store and stand by until he got there. We also asked that they make a 4.59 report. 11.55 p.m. We started to take the youngster to the Juvenile Bureau. What's your name, son? What difference does it make? Acting like that isn't going to help you. You guys pick me up, remember? You worry about it. I got nothing to be afraid oh, of. Oh, yes, you have, boy. You could have been shot back there. Maybe you should have pulled the trigger. Look, son, what's the matter with you? Why are you acting like this? You just got real lucky back there. That's the only reason you're alive now. It was dark in there. As far as I could tell, you were an adult. You didn't stop when I told you to. Now, according to the book, I could have shot you. You know that, don't you? Showing the kid. That'd make you a big man. No, I'm just bringing it up to prove a point. Save it. Now, look, son. I'm going to tell you something. When you break into a place at night, you're not a kid anymore. You're asking for trouble. You got both your pockets full of it. The way you work tonight makes us think you're mixed up in a lot more thefts than just tonight. That right? You ever been arrested before? No. Never been in trouble with the law, huh? Sure. I'm a real criminal. I got a ticket once for riding my bike through a boulevard stop. Radio car stopped me and tagged me. Big deal. But they're going to send me to San Quentin. Maybe you can give me the gas chamber. How old are you? What difference does that make? How old are you? You figure it. All right, you look like you're about 11 to me. That's what everybody thinks. Be 15 my next birthday. Don't kid us, son. It's the truth, 15. That's what I'll be, 15. When were you born? 1939, November 2nd. You're small for your age, aren't you? Why do you say that? Aren't you? It's got nothing to do with it, nothing at all. I can do anything any other kid can do. Anything. Don't you forget that. What's the matter with you? Is that a sore point with you? Huh? Your size, is that a sore point? There's nothing wrong with my size. Doctor says that I'm all right. Just that some people aren't meant to be as big as others, that's all. There's nothing wrong with me. Now, now, come on, son. What's your name? Now, look, you know we're going to find out. How are you going to find out? We will. Now, why don't you save us all a lot of time and tell us the truth here? be better if you did. If I do tell you. You going to put it in the papers? What? I tell you, there are going to be a lot of reporters around. My name going to get in the papers? Not from us. Can't tell you, then. You mean if there's no reporters around, you aren't going to tell us your name? Is that it? That's the way it is. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Maybe that's the way it looks to you. Where do you live? Can't tell you that either. But you've got things all wrong, son. It isn't what you want to tell us. That's got nothing to do with this. You're going to tell us what we want to know sooner or later. Where are we going? Georgia Street. That's where the jail is. Why do you ask that? Because I want to know. Yeah, there's a jail there. Reporters? What? They're going to be reporters there. What is this thing with reporters in you? What's this all about? Reporters put your name in the papers, don't they? Sometimes. Well, you get the reporters all lined up. You get them from all the papers. You have them there and I'll tell you all about it. The whole story. You just get the reporters and the photographers. Be sure about them, because I want some pictures, too. Well, look, let me get this straight. What? You say you aren't going to give us any information without the press being there. Is that right? That's the way it's going to be. You got it wrong, boy. What? Doesn't make any difference who's there. You're going to come around. Yeah. We'll find out. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. Twelve ten a.m. We got to Georgia Street Juvenile Bureau. Frank pulled the car into the side alley, and we took the subject out of the back seat. Up this way, son. This is a seedy-looking place. Yeah, well, it's been here a long time. Looks like a set out of a picture. And don't you worry about it, huh? You want to take him down the hall, Frank? I'll check with Hargrove. Yeah, come on, boy. Hi, Friday. Working kind of late, aren't you? Yeah, we are. 
I got the note from Simmons on the milk burglaries. Checked around the night watch. Nothing on it, so I didn't call you. I don't think you have to worry about it. I think we got the answer. Yeah? We just picked up a kid. We got him dead to rights in the market. Open bottle of milk right next to the cash register. Where is he now? Frank's got him down the hall. You think he's your boy? Yeah, it looks like it. Everything adds up. The entrance, what he tried to take, the milk. All along, seems to fit. You got that kind of a case. What are you worrying about? Just two things. Yeah? Who he is and why he did it. He won't tell you? No. He's got some big thing working about the press. Says he won't give us anything without reporters being there. Makes it rough, Joe. You know the policy. Yeah, I do. He won't let us help him. If he wants publicity, take me down. Introduce me as a reporter. Well, it might do it. Won't do any harm to try. Let's go. Go ahead. Thanks. Who am I going to be? Well, tell him you said Hughes from the mirror, huh? Yeah, might as well be one of the good ones. Son, you wanted to talk to somebody from the papers. It's against the policy, but we swung it for you. This is Sid Hughes from the Mirror. Hi. You the fellow that held that guy on the phone in Baltimore? Yeah. Great. I read all about it. You gonna write me up like that? I hope not, son. There were two men killed in that operation. I read all the stories. Everybody did. That's how I mean for you to write me up. With a picture. What makes you think you got it coming? You break into one store and try to steal a couple of cartons of cigarettes? That doesn't make the first page. One store? I got into 19 of them. 19 before they caught me. That's important, isn't it? That's a story. I don't know. It might be. A couple of things we better get straightened out here. First off, what's your name? Better get your notebook out. Be able to take all this down. Don't worry about it, son. You just answer the questions. I'll get it. Yeah. Okay. My name's Elroy Graham. That's E-L-R-O-Y-G-R-A-H-A-M. Yeah. How old are you? I told you once. Almost 15. You said you'd broken into 19 stores. Is that right? Yeah. 19. Might have made it more, but something went wrong tonight. Had trouble with the burglar alarm. Thought I'd turned it off. Bad mistake. He's still working, it wasn't for that. Guess it only takes one, though, huh, Mr. Hughes? Yeah, I guess so. You want to tell us why you did it? What? You had to have a reason for committing these robberies. You want to tell us what it was? Sure. Good reason. Real good. All right, tell us. Well, you see, I always had trouble at school. Never seemed to quite make it. All the guys like me. They all did. All the girls do, too. Got girls calling me almost every night, asking me to take them to dances, stuff like that. I don't go much for stuff like that. You can understand, can't you, Mr. Hughes? Go ahead, Elroy. Well, they wanted me for all the teams, football, basketball. All the time asking me to play. But I figure if you want to get ahead in the world, you got to have an aim. Some place where you want to get. Figure out that. Work for it and you're going to get there. Don't you find that true, Mr. Hughes? Go ahead. That's the way it was with me. All the time turned down offers to be on some team. Telling some girl that I couldn't take her to a dance. Just didn't have the time. Somehow I just couldn't make it. You can understand it. You've been around, you know all the successful kind of people. You write something and a lot of people read it. You know what I mean. Don't you? Well, what's the matter? Something wrong? I'm trying to tell you what happened. I'm giving it to you straight. What's the matter? Now you want to tell us the truth, Elroy. What? I don't know why you're trying to sell us this line, boy. It isn't necessary. I don't know why you did what you did, but I do know you had a reason for it. Now, that's all we want to know. Just the reason. You don't believe me? Afraid not. How about you? No, son, I don't. Mr. Hughes? No. Can't even lie right. <laughs> Can't even tell a lie good. All my life I've been trying to be like other kids. All the time getting beat up, getting left out of things. You know why? <laughs> do you know? Go ahead, son. <laughs> Big reason. <laughs> Biggest reason in the world. Because <laughs> I'm almost 15 years old and I'm... Four feet seven inches tall. Four feet seven. 
Weight, 97 pounds. That ain't very big, not big enough. Old time, other kids shoving you around. All the time, you're the joke. Gets to the time when you figure it's easy to laugh, too. Because if you don't, some kid's gonna beat you up. Gets to the point where you don't care anymore. I used to clip out those coupons and send them in. Get the books back on how to build myself up. Worked at it. Didn't do nothing for me. I was still four feet seven and weighed 97 pounds. All the stuff I took didn't do no good. Still came out four feet seven, 97 pounds. All right, so do you want to tell us about the burglaries? I did it to be big, that's why. I had the things other people wanted, cigarettes, candy, the other things kids wanted. I had all that stuff that the other kids wanted. <laughs> Made me important. Don't you see that? You gotta understand it, Mr. Hughes. That's why I wanted my picture in the paper. That's why I wanted the story. So the kids would know that I'd done something big. So they know. <laughs> all right, son. It's gonna be all right here. No, it is. Like everything else I tried to do, I loused it up. I didn't mean to steal, but it, it was the only thing to do. The only way I had. Now, wasn't there some other? No. No, there wasn't. All the time, the other kids laughing. All the time, talking. I just couldn't stand it anymore. I just couldn't. Here you go. Thanks. You can understand it, can't you? It makes sense. What's that, son? Wasn't so much the kids saying I was little. Yeah. But I didn't want them to think I was small. Twelve thirty-six a.m. We contacted the parents of the Graham boy and asked them to come down to the station. We talked to them for an hour and tried to fill them in. In view of the fact that the parents of the subject were responsible persons, the boy was booked for violation of Section Four Fifty Nine PC delinquent, and he was released to his parents pending his hearing in juvenile court. Five days passed, and we heard nothing from the boy. On December 24th, Frank and I checked into the office. Friday? Yeah, Earl. Kid in the back wants to see you and Smith. Okay, thank you. Hi, Mr. Friday. Well, hello, Elroy. What can we do for you? Well, I guess you think it's kind of funny. What's that? I want to tell you that I sure think it's good what you did for me. Help me with that burglary thing the other night. Well, it isn't over yet, son. The court still has to make a decision on it. Yeah. But what you did to make me feel better. As far as I'm concerned, whatever the judge decides, I'll go along with it. I had a long talk with my folks. So we got it all talked out. All the way talked out. Well, that's good, son. We're glad of it, son. Maybe you guys won't like it. I mean, me knowing you such a short time and all. But, but I wanted to bring you these. Merry Christmas. Oh, that's awful nice of you, Elroy, but it isn't necessary. I want to give them to you anyway. For what you did for me. Oh, that's mighty nice of you, all right. Sure appreciate it. Couple of packages of cigarettes. Hope they're the kind you smoke. Yeah, son, they'll be fine. Thanks, son. Well, see you guys around, huh? Yeah, sure, son. Just one more thing, Sergeant. Yeah, son? Just thought you'd like to know. Yeah, what's that? I didn't steal those. <laughs> The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent.
On the 21st of December, a petition was filed in juvenile court on behalf of the subject. On January 26th, trial was held in Department 52 of Juvenile Court, State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Elroy Merton Graham appeared before the juvenile court where he admitted the alleged burglaries. At this time, under the counsel of the judge of the juvenile court, the subject was placed under the care of the probation department for a period of three years, with the provision that his parents take him to a competent psychiatrist. Ladies and gentlemen, don't forget your letter carrier when he makes a special trip to call on you for muscular dystrophy. Reach in your pocket. Give for muscular dystrophy. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Jack Prussian, Olin Soule, Sammy Ogg. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. Watch an entirely new Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspaper for the day and time. Muller and the news next on the NBC Radio Network. Imagine committing a crime for the publicity. Well, they thought of it back in the fall of 1953 when that episode, The Big Present, aired on Dragnet. You heard it here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. I think one of the things you really need to do for your mental health in these hectic times is to read the funny papers. I have to admit, I don't read them every day, but I do read them every weekend, and one of the first strips I turn to is Mark Trail. Come to think of it, I've been reading that comic strip for over 60 years now. I guess he was kind of a proto-environmentalist, because his adventures in the wild often pitted him, as they still do, against a variety of villains and fools despoiling Mother Nature. Just as many other comic strips, Mark Trail was adapted for radio, a few times, in fact. We're about to hear an episode from the first series with its famous opening, well, famous among old-time radio buffs, anyway, from May 15th, 1950, and the Mutual Network, it's a story called The Snake with Red Hair, from the series Mark Trail. Kellogg's Pep, the build-up wheat cereal with the prize in every package, 
invites you to share another thrilling adventure with Mark Trail. Battling the raging elements. Fighting the savage wilderness. Striking at the enemies of man and nature. One man's name resounds from snow-capped mountains down across the sun-baked plains. Mark It is midnight in a small town in the northwest. And while the rest of the town sleeps, two men working in the hooded gleam of a flashlight crouch near a huge safe. This is going to be easy. Hand me the nitroglycerin cord. Yeah, but be careful with it. Yeah, sure. Now when I pour the soup in the hole I drilled, you plug it with the wax so the soup won't run out. Right. That's it. We can touch her off now. Okay, but let's get everything straight first. You'll have to work fast after the blast. You're telling me. When the safe's open, you grab the engineering survey and spread it out on the desk. Then I'll shoot pictures of it with this camera while you empty the safe of all cash and bonds. Uh-huh. Make it look like a straight robbery. Right. Then we'll put the survey back and clear out fast with everything we want to know. I've got it. You all set now? Uh-huh. Okay, here goes. This'll blast us right into a million bucks. A million dollar robbery. Sounds like plenty of adventure for Mark Trail. It is early afternoon, and the hot sun gleaming brightly over the woodlands of the northwest casts a speckled pattern of light and shade on two men and a boy working beneath the trees. Mark Trail, Scotty, and their friend Jim Little are clearing the underbrush and blazing markers on trees, establishing trails through 5,000 acres of forest. Okay, Mark, I'm up to the fork in the woods. Right with you, Scotty. How are you doing, Jim? Finished here, Mark. I'll be up in a second. Well, how does it look, Mark? Oh, uh, you're going too deep, Scotty. Drawing too much sap. Now, uh, when you mark a tree for trail, just nip the bark and a little bit of the wood. Oh, sorry, Mark. I'll watch it. But this hatchet is sharp. Then uh, don't put so much force behind your blows. <laughs> this way you think we ought to start another fork in the trail, Mark? Uh, yes, Jim. Uh, three ways this time. If you look through the woods, you'll see three natural lines of least resistance. Uh, just follow them. Right. How many miles of trail have we marked already? About 30, Scotty. Mm, not bad for three days. No, but there's a lot more to do. Jim's got about 5,000 acres of land. It should be good for at least uh, 100 miles of trail. Well, let's start off then. Okay. Jim, uh, you take the right fork. Scotty, you take the left. Now, same as before, blaze your mark about every 30 to 50 yards. And uh, make a note of the likely-looking campsite. Check. Wait a minute. Someone's coming. Oh? It's your wife, Jim. Well, she must have gotten lonesome back at the cabin. There's somebody with her. Yeah, I see. Oh, Whoa, girl. Hello, boys. You said they come a long way. Oh, we work yeah. fast, Mrs. Little. You sure do. Sorry, Mr. Davis. I didn't know you were going to have to ride this far. That's all right, Mrs. Little. Would have come a lot farther to talk to your husband. Jim, this is Mr. Davis told him, frankly, that you wouldn't listen to him, but he wants to see you anyway. Uh, Scotty and I will start uh, cutting trails. Oh, you don't have to go, Mark. I don't want to waste time, Jim. Remember, we can only be up here for a few days, and we want to do as much as we can. Okay. Come on, Scotty. 
Let's start blazing these two other trails. Right, Mark. Well, Mr. Davis, what can I do for you? Mr. Little, I understand you inherited this tract of land about five months ago. That's right, for my grandfather. You and your wife both come from the city? Yeah. Imagine you prefer the comforts of city life to living out here. So I'm prepared to make you an offer for this land. I'm afraid you've got us wrong, Mr. Davis. Wrong? We both loathe city life. Yeah, the only thing that kept us there was the necessity of making a living. Well, you can hardly make a living out of this scrub timber and backwoods land. Well, that's what we thought, too. But my friend, Mark Trail, the gentleman who just left, showed us the way. Oh? Yes, we're turning our land into a private hiking and camping preserve, Mr. Davis. We're blazing trails all through it, and we're going to charge a small fee for using them. We'll hardly get rich that way. Tell you a secret, Mr. Davis. We don't want to. Not even if you got an offer of $10 an acre? That's the price I'm authorized to give for an option. Sorry, Mr. Davis, but both Mary and I have been away from the land too long. And now that we're back on it again, we're not going to leave it. Not as long as we can live off it. Okay, Mr. Little, but if you should change your mind later, if anything should happen to put a crimp in your plans... My offer may not be open then. Well, I won't lose any sleep over it, Mr. Davis. Whatever you say, Mr. Little. But remember, nature can be awfully funny sometime. You never can tell what could happen to make this whole 5,000 acres useless for your hiking and camping deal. didn't do so good, eh, Red? They won't sell. Uh, where's the photograph of that engineering survey? In the glove compartment. Let me see. The Stouffer Place, the Crandell Place, Johnson Place. You don't have to go all through it, Red. I can tell you the score right now. We've got options in every piece of land we need but the little place. And that's a big but. They've got 5,000 acres. More land on the railroads right away than anyone else. You're positive they won't sell? Yeah, they're nature lovers. They're going to turn it into a hiking and camping preserve. Hiking? Red, we need that land if we're going to jack up the price to the railroad. Without it, we may as well give up this whole deal. Tell me something new. What do we do about it? I'm not sure. That's why I wanted to look at this survey. Now, uh, this piece of land down here in the south, a hundred-acre strip to Miller Place, you bought that outright, didn't you? Yes, three dollars an acre. That was way too much. This uh, hill indicated on the survey, Snake Hill, that just a local name? A lot more than that. That's why three dollars was too much to pay. It's a big, bare, rocky hill crawling with snakes. Snakes, huh? A lot of them? Believe me, Red, all the snakes St. Patrick chased out of Ireland landed on that hill. What kind? Rattlesnakes, Miller said. Better and better. Turn around, Claude. I think we'll take a drive down and look at that property of ours. What for? I'm not sure, but if an idea I've got works, those snakes might be an open sesame to an option on that little place. Go on, Claude. Head for Snake Hill. Hey, Jim. Jim Little. Over here, Mark. What are you doing there? You're veering off the trail. Yeah, I know, but I had to... Gotcha. What are you doing, Jim? Just knocking off a snake. A snake? Yeah, a rattler. Killed three of them already. Now every time I hear the brush move, I near jump out of my skin. Funny, I saw a couple on the trail I was blazing. 
You must be getting into pretty thick snake country. Mm, shouldn't be, though. This is damp and thickly wooded. Isn't the kind of land rattlers are particularly fond of. Well, fond or not, they're here. Yeah, so it seems. We'd better stop for now and warn Scotty. Yeah, he's working trail farther north. There may not be any snakes up that way. Uh, I'd rather not take the chance, Jim. Come on. He should be along here somewhere. He marked trail along the route we laid out. Well, his markers are pretty clear. Ahead of us somewhere. Yeah. Oh, wait, there he is. Near the edge of that gully. Hey, he's sprawled out on the ground. Something the matter with him? No, no, Jim. He's grabbing himself a quick cat nap. Uh-huh. For a minute, I hey, thought... Hey, great, Scott, Jim, look. Look behind Scotty. A rattler? Yes. Less than six inches from Scotty's head. And he's calling to strike. Come on, Mark. Uh, no, no, don't move. But Mark... Don't make a sound. You'll scare it into striking. Well, what are we going to do? Give me your revolver. Mark, that's an impossible shot. If you miss, you'll hit Scotty. I know, Jim, but I've got to take the chance. Scotty may stir in his sleep or wake up any second now. Here goes. Resting his elbow on the ground, Mark sights down the stubby barrel of the revolver at the slowly weaving head of the deadly rattler. Cold sweat breaks out on his forehead. His fingers tremble. If he should miss... Suddenly, Scotty stirs, and the snake rears back fangs agape. We'll continue in just a moment, so stand by. What a spot to be in. Only steady nerves and swift action can save the day. Bewildered by the sudden appearance of rattlesnakes on the 5,000 acres of woodland owned by Jim Little and his wife Mary, Mark and Jim head through the woods to warn Scotty and find the boy asleep on the ground, a rattler less than six inches from his head, coiled to strike. Afraid to move any closer for fear of scaring the snake into striking, Mark takes careful aim at the reptile's head with Jim's revolver. A miss would be fatal to Scotty. Suddenly, the boy stirs. Mark! It's going to strike. Shoot quick. Right. Hey, Scott. You did it, Mark. Blew his head right hey, off. Hey, what get? What's the idea, Mark? Scotty, you okay? You weren't bitten, were you? Bitten by what? By that rattler. Rattler? Oh, my oh, golly, was that thing next to me? Yes, Scotty. And if Mark hadn't made a perfect shot. Golly. Oh, steady now. Uh, I'm okay, Mark. Just kind of, kind of weak in the knees. I'll bet. Now, uh, listen, Scotty. Is this the first snake you've seen around here? Well... Well, uh, no, no. As a matter of fact, I saw a couple more while I was cutting out trail. So they're up in this section of the woods, too, huh? Mm, that's strange. <laughs> doesn't make this a very promising hiking site. It sure doesn't. Uh, Jim, Scotty, uh, take a look at this thing. How can you stand touching it, Mark? They're so slimy. Uh, not a bit, Jim. They're quite dry and uh, cool to the touch, as a matter of fact. They're sort of leathery. Okay, I'll take your word for it. Well, well what about the snake, Mark? Uh, snakes usually spend their lifetime from birth to death. In an area of about uh, three to five miles. They uh, very rarely travel any farther than that. So? Well, uh, nature knows this, Jim, and provides for it. You see, the colorings of a snake conform pretty closely to the area in which it lives. Hmm. But this one is much lighter than the snake uh, who made his home in these woods would be. Yeah, he sure is, Mark. And besides, look, in the tail, the rattle. 
Uh, there are a lot of grains of sand. And no sandy areas near here. What are you driving at, Mark? Had someone brought this snake here? It's possible. This one and the others we saw. But golly, why, Mark? And uh, now you've got me, Scotty. Well, if that's true, I might just as well forget about making this a camping preserve. Not necessarily, Jim. But between us, we've seen eight snakes in one day. Who's going to want to hike and camp in a place like this? Oh, we can get rid of the snakes. Are you kidding? I've got 5,000 acres, Mark, and most of it woodland. How can we find them all, much less get rid of them? Uh, we don't have to get rid of them, Jim. We'll fight fire with fire. What do you mean? Well, to be more exact, fight snake with snake. We'll import the most deadly enemy the rattler has. The bull snake. The bull snake? That's right. It's a non-poisonous snake that bears about the same relationship to a rattler that a mongoose does to a cobra. They are deadly enemies. And whenever they meet, the bull snake always wins. Yeah. You know, I saw a fight between them once. The bull grabbed the rattler behind the head and he held on until the rattler was dead. Right, Scotty. And another thing, Jim, the mere presence of a bull snake is enough to drive rattlers out of the area. Well, do you think it would work, Mark? Oh, I'm sure it would. Come on. Uh, let's go back to the cabin and call the State Conservation Bureau. With any kind of a break, they should get the bull snakes here tomorrow. That's fine, sir. Much better than I hoped for. We'll be waiting for them. And thanks again. So long. Well, Mark? It's all set, Jim. Uh, the Bureau will send over the bull snakes this afternoon. And at cost, since you're going to turn the land into a hiking preserve. Oh, that's wonderful, Mark. It'll certainly save our necks. But uh, one thing, Jim. He was awfully surprised to hear there were rattlesnakes up here. Yeah, so was Jim. Uh, he said the closest any snakes were reported was about uh, 30 miles below here. A place called uh, Snake Hill. You know, Jim? Sure. It's a piece of property owned by an old man, sort of a hermit, named Jed Miller. Oh, I wonder. What, Mark? Uh, just exactly what's happening that would make these snakes change their natural habitat. Well, don't ask me. You're the naturalist, Mark. Well, if they came from Snake Hill, all the land between here and there should have them, too. It'd be easy enough to find out. We could call up our neighbors below us and ask if they'd notice any snakes. Uh, would it be too much trouble? Well, is that important, Mark? I don't know, Jim. Now, let's say it's my curiosity. Uh, help me satisfy it, huh? Okay. Mary and I'll start checking right away. Hello, Mr. Stouffer. This is Mary Little. Jim and I were just wondering if you'd noticed any snakes on your property. Oh, you haven't? What's that? You've optioned it? Oh, I see. Thank you. This is Jim Little, Mr. Crandall. Listen, about your property. Mary and I were wondering... Oh, you're dead? An option to whom? Mr. Davis, huh? Sold your land, Mr. Johnson? Would you mind telling me if it was to a Mr. Davis? I see. Thank you, Mr. Johnson. Well, Mr. Davis seems to be a pretty active dealer in real estate. I don't get it, Mark. What's he buying an optioning land around here for? 
property around here certainly isn't valuable. Not on the surface. Maybe there's something going on that we don't know about. Yeah, it looks like it, Scotty. Uh, Jim, uh, would you make another phone call? Sure, to whom? Uh, this Miller who owns Snake Hill. Oh, he wouldn't have a phone on the place line. We could drive down and talk to him, Jim. Yeah, I'll get the car. And... Suppose you and Scotty go, Jim. I want Mary to make some more phone calls. All right. Find out just how much Davis has bought around here. Maybe that'll give us some idea of what he's aiming at. Okay, Mark. Well, what, what do you what do we ask, Miller, Mark? Uh, first, if he sold his place to Davis. If he has, then we'll try to find out if Davis has been artificially encouraging a mass snake migration to this property. But why? I can't see. Uh, that's something Mary and I'll try to find out while you two are seeing Miller. Now, get going, eh? <laughs> Apparently, the last person who optioned his property to Davis was Mr. Blair. I thought so. All right, now, look at this map. Yes? I've shaded every piece of property that Davis has optioned. What about it? Now, look. It starts here in the south, near uh, Wilkesville. Uh-huh. And it runs in a straight line up through this valley about 45 miles to the town of Beekman. So? Well, don't you see, Mary? There's no highway or railroad connecting these two towns. And Davis has bought up or optioned every piece of property except yours along what would be the uh, natural route. St. Mary. Yes? Has there ever been any talk about a highway or railroad being built along here? A railroad? Oh, sure, for the last 30 years, but no one's paid any attention to it. Just one of those dreams that never come true. I've got a hunch this one is. Give me that phone, Mary. I'm going to call the railroad in Wilkesville right now. Of course, Mr. Hood. Yes, I understand your reluctance to talk over the phone. Uh, we'll leave immediately. Uh, we should be in Wilkesville in about an hour. Right, see you then. Are they building a road, Mark? He wouldn't say over the phone, Mary, but he wants to see us about it. Then there is something to it. More than that, their offices were robbed a few weeks ago. The safe cracked, money and bonds stolen. But what upset them the most was that some confidential surveys had been disturbed. Surveys? Engineering surveys for a roadbed. But what interests me most is that both of the thieves were seen in their getaway. And one of them, Mary, had red hair. Mr. Davis? That's a safe bet. Come on. We'll take my car, pick up Scotty and Jim on the way. And then, with the help of the Saybrook Railroad, put Mr. Red Davis in prison. This is it, Scotty. Miller's place. Hmm. Not much more than a shack. Not a very attractive one, either. No. So I took a slow driving down so you could enjoy the real beauty of this country before seeing this eyesore. <laughs> oh, let me warn you, Scotty. Miller's kind of peculiar. Well, I guess anyone would have to be who lived here. Yeah. Hey, look over there. A truck backed up against that hill. Yeah. What... Oh, hello, Mr. Well, Mr. Little. Mr. Davis, what are you doing here? Not that it's any of your business, Sonny, but I happen to own this property. You bought it for Miller? Any law against that? Maybe there is. Come on, Scotty. Wait a minute. 
What did the kid mean by that crack? Our business was with Miller. We'll you talk... You stay and listen to Red. What? A gun? Lodge, you didn't have to pull they a gun. They were curious about the truck, Red. I think they suspect. If they didn't before, they sure do now. What's the difference? I've been thinking Mr. Little's widow would sell a lot sooner than he would. Widow? Look, Mr. Davis, I've got a pretty good idea what you've been trying to do. And so have other people. What have I been trying to do? Force Jim to sell his land by dumping snakes on it and making it useless for a hiking and camping preserve. Good guess, kid. See, Red, what did you think? Are you... Stay where you are, kid. This gun means business. Well, Red? Your idea is a nice one, Claude. And so simple. Because it takes just one little piece of lead to make a wife, a widow. Slowly and surely, Claude raises his gun, his finger tightening on the trigger. Scotty and Jim back up until they reach the wall of the shack, until there is no further escape. And they tense themselves, waiting for the deadly shots. We'll continue in a moment, so keep listening. at gunpoint in the shack near Snake Hill. Scotty and Jim Little wait for the shots that will blast them into oblivion. But as Claude's finger tightens around the trigger, his partner, Red, suddenly stops him. Wait a minute, Claude. I got a better idea how to get rid of him. What do you mean, better? This is foolproof. Not from the Lord. His bodies with lead in to make the police ask questions. But if they were found in one of the caves on Snake Hill... Hey, you've got something there. Sure. Little and the kid stumbled into one of the caves. There's a lot of snakes that weren't careful. Too bad. Tragic accident. Yes. And we'd be in the clear. Okay, you two, get moving. Wait, Claude, look! Snakes! What? Under the window, two of them! How in blazes did they get in here? Never mind. Now shoot them, quick! Hit them, will you? Hit them! I'm trying to. You fool! Can't you shoot straight? They're still coming! Red! My gun's empty. I'm getting out of here. Not so fast, Red. Hey. Get him, Mark. A pleasure. Now take care oh. of this. Man. No, no, no. Keep away from me. Better look out for those snakes, Claude. Let me out of here. Let me out. Not until you confess, pal. There's nothing to confess. Then the snakes will make you talk. No, no. We dumped them on Little's property, used ether on them, trucked them over to the farm. Why? The railroad they were going to run their line through Little's property was on the right of way. Uh-huh. And you wanted to hold the railroad by getting options on all the property. Yes, yes. And you blew open the safe in the railroad office, too. Yes, yes. Now let me out. Oh, snake! Oh! <laughs> what do you know? He fainted. Mark, is that true? About the railroad? Yes, Jim. Mary and I just came from the railroad office. They told us all about it. And we met old Miller in town. He told us the sidewinders were out here, so I came out as fast as I could, figuring there might be some trouble. Gosh, Mark. And our idea about the hiking preserve is ruined. No, sir, Jim. Uh, they'll only cut through a narrow section. And uh, they'll build underpasses for your trails. Well, looks like we got rid of all the snakes for good. Snakes? Great seizure. Those two by the window. Kill them, Mark. Easy, Jim. Easy. There are a couple of bull snakes. They're harmless. Well, I uh, threw them into the shack myself to distract Red and Claude. What? Oh, well, they sure scared me. Uh, Jim, uh, I think besides helping you cut trail, uh, Scotty and I better give you a couple of lessons in wildlife. <laughs> you need them. <laughs> Mark, telegram for you. Oh, thanks, Scotty. 
Well, who's it from? What does it say? Well, give me a chance to read it, will you? Oh, it's from Cherry. She... Uh-oh. Start packing, Scotty. We've got to get back to Lost Forest. Trouble, Mark? Yes, Scotty, a lot of trouble. And on Wednesday, trouble becomes danger. As Mark Trail learns that death comes in threes and fights the claws of the killer bear. Tune in, same time, same station on Wednesday. And find out what happens to... Mark Trail! Battling the raging elements. Fighting the savage wilderness. Striking at the enemies of man and nature. One man's name resounds from snow-capped mountains down across the sun-baked plains. Mark Trail! Remember to tune in then on Wednesday when Mark Trail will again be brought to you by the build-up wheat cereal, Kellogg's Pep. This program is entirely fictitious. The resemblance of any name, personality, or incident to an actual person or event is merely coincidental. This program came from New York. Mark Trail by Ed Dodd also appears in the comics of many of America's leading newspapers. Look for it daily and Sunday. Matt Crowley portrays Mark Trail and Ben Cooper is Scotty. Today's Mark Trail was written by Palmer Thompson, directed by Drex Hines. Jackson Beck speaking. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Mark Trail outsmarts the plotters in The Snake with Red Hair from the spring of 1950 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We have to confess it, we missed the 210th anniversary of the birth of, well, certainly a candidate for greatest American author of all time, so far, Edgar Allan Poe. So we're going to celebrate his 211th birthday he was born on this date in 1809. Here on the big broadcast, we owe a big debt to Edgar Allan Poe. Almost as a footnote to his genius, he's often credited as the inventor of detective fiction. And where would our show be without Dragnet, Gunsmoke, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar, not to mention the other noirish shows we play? Then, of course, there were his gothic horror stories, and we'll hear one of the most famous of them now. It comes from a series called The Weird Circle that was syndicated by the Mutual Network and later NBC during the last two years of World War II. From December 18, 1943, here's The Weird Circle's version of Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. from out of the past stories strange and weird bell keeper toll the bell so that all may know we are gathered again in the weird circle 
pale heart. our meager repast in the dining room. Listen. Yes, that's my uncle walking up and down overhead, pacing the floor. He senses it too, my nervousness. Every night after dinner, he leaves the dining room and goes upstairs to the second floor, where he paces up and down. And suddenly, his heart begins to beat louder and louder. You can't hear it, but I can. My nervousness has sharpened my senses. Yes, I can hear things no one else can hear. Confound my senses. The footsteps. They've stopped. Now he'll walk down the circular stairway and join me here in the parlor. And I'll have to look at him. Watch him. That eye. I have nothing against him. But his eye. That huge, distorted eye. If the eye offends thee, pluck it out. Pluck it out. Tortures me at night. I lie in bed and shut my eyes. But that horrible thing peers at me, embedded in my senses. That eye glistens. And shimmers. It haunts me. Kill. Yeah. Kill. I have nothing against him. My uncle. My only relative. The eye. Pluck out the eye. The eye. The eye. He's coming, yes, now down the stairs. Sniffing as he blinks. The swollen lid covers that eye. Uncle. Is that you? Is it me? Of course it is. Who else would it be, Charles? I... I don't know. Ah, now for a nice hour of relaxation. Will you join me in a cigar, Charles? Here, take this one of mine. Thank you, Uncle. Sit down here. I prefer sitting back here, Uncle. Oh, nonsense. I can't see you over there, and you can't see me. Come, Come sit over here. I'd much prefer to stay here. Do you dislike my company after all these years, Charles? No, Uncle. All right, I'll join you. But... Why are you staring at me like that? The eye. Look at the eye. Staring at you. Red and swollen hideous. A pale blue film covers it. Kill. Kill. Charles? Yes, Uncle? Come, light up your cigar. Here's a light. Now, that's better, my boy. These cigars have rich, fragrant aroma. A very rich, fragrant aroma. It lulls a man's nerves into a peaceful state. Leaves the mind free for contemplation, doesn't it? Kill. Yes, Uncle. Yeah. Nothing like the hours spent meditatively... Oh, blasted visitors. 
You answer the bell, Charles. Yes, Uncle. I dislike being interrupted like this. It's bad for my digestion. People should know that. Good evening, Mr. Holt. Well, good evening, Charles. I hope you and your uncle don't mind a nice neighborly visit. I'm sure we don't, Mr. Holtzcombe. I'm glad. I was all alone this evening and felt the need of a nice, friendly chat, so I dropped over. Uh, good evening, Mr. Woodward. Good evening, Mr. Holtzcombe. How are you this evening? Feeling surprisingly fit. man of my age has no right feeling so healthy. Bad for the doctor's income, but I feel like a man of 20. Just as fit physically and mentally as Charles here. Thank you, Mr. Holtzcombe. Uh, uh, you, uh, uh, well, won't you join us for a little while, Mr. Holt? You'd love to. Yes, indeed, I'd enjoy it. Can't be for long. I, I'm retiring early, but a short visit would be appreciated. Thank you, Mr. Woodward. Uh, mind if I light up my pipe? No, not at all, Mr. Holscomb. Uh, Charles, get him an ashtray before he scatters the ashes all over the carpet, you know? Yes, Uncle. Here you are, Mr. Holscomb. Thank you, Charles. Well, 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 what's this? Well, as any idiot can plainly see, it's a knife. Yes, a knife, Mr. Woodward. It's a strange-looking knife. Ah, belong to our ancestors. Hmm. Charles, what's it doing down here off the hook on the wall? I, uh, I took it down from the wall to clean it, Uncle. Clean it? Well, old knives are supposed to look old. Clean it. Clean it? Uh, I'll put it back. Uh, be careful, Charles, my boy. I knew a young man exactly your age who took a family heirloom down from the wall one night and, and well, blasted if it didn't slip and cut off his right arm. <laughs> yes, took the arm clean off right to the elbow. He was a mechanic by profession and it, well, it, it ruined his career. Be careful, be careful, Charles, in putting the knife back. Uh, you'd better stand on a chair, Charles. It's it's much wiser to take an ounce of prevention. Yes, your uncle's right. How's that, Uncle? Well, it's 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 not hanging straight. I like things to hang straight. It annoys me to have something crooked on the wall. Yes, it means a death in the family. <laughs> One of the pictures in my house was crooked on the wall the night of my wife's death. Now, I'm not a superstitious man, mind you, but I... There, yeah, that does it, Charles. All right. Now, put the chair back where you got it. I'm not a superstitious man, mind you, but I was confounded when she died. Confounded, I tell you. Yes, I imagine that she were confounded. Uh, of course, that coincidence really doesn't compare with an event which occurred to a friend of mine. His name was... Um, oh, very common name. Uh, what was it? Uh, Smith. Peter Smith. Well, what about Peter Smith? He had a picture on the wall in his home. Well, this picture sidled over on its wire, refusing to stay upright. The picture refused? I swear it's true, Mr. Woodward. Well, I was there, if you don't believe me. Do you know what happened? No, I do not know what happened. Peter Smith died that very night. All right. What time is it, Charles? Almost nine o'clock, Uncle. Three more hours. Three more hours. If thine eye offends thee, pluck it out. It's nine o'clock. It's almost my bedtime, Mr. Holskin. Oh, don't mind me, Mr. Woodward. I was about to leave anyway. <laughs> I see. Look at the knife hanging on the wall. It slipped sideways again. So it has. Anxious? Anxious, Charles. The knife is anxious. It reminds me of Peter Smith's picture. Huh. 
Well, I, I must be on my way. Uh, don't bother to see me to the door, Charles. I'll find my way out. Uh, good evening, Mr. Woodward. Uh, good evening, Mr. Holscombe. That, that man makes me nervous, Charles, with his stupid stories of Smith. Fix that knife, Charles. Of course, Uncle. I, I'll fix it right away. I'm tired. I'm going up to bed now. I'll help you up the stairs, Uncle. Help me? <laughs> Since when do I need help? Well, maybe I do, Dad. Anything else you want of me besides opening this window, Uncle? No, nothing, Charles. I'd better take this chair out of your way. Oh, the chair isn't in my way. In case you should awake during the night and want to get out of bed. You don't want to stumble over chairs on your way to the door. Well, I, I never awake during the night, Charles. But you might. Or we might. Yes, we might. We might creep in here. I might, yes, I might. Oh, I might do anything, my boy. I also might not. I'll take the candle with you before you leave, Charles. Of course, Uncle. I hadn't intended to leave it burning. Of course. We'll take it with us. Of course. Of course. Good night. Good night. 9.30. 9.30. I must be clever. I must think everything out very carefully. Yes, carefully. Must wait till midnight. Yes, till midnight. Why must I wait till midnight? Why? That's the plan. The clever plan. Clever, clever. Walk down the stairs and wait in the parlor. The room will be dark. And I'll wait. I'll wait. You'll be asleep by midnight. Clever, clever. Then at midnight, I'll creep up the stairs with a knife. And if the eye offends me, pluck it out. It must have meant me. Of course, it's all so clear. Clear, clear and clever. First thing to do is get the knife. Go into the parlor. Stand on the chair and get the knife. Be careful, child. Careful, careful, careful with the chair. You pull up the chair and stand on it, but be careful. I'm always careful. Now, I've the knife. What do I do next? What is the plan? Sit and wait. Sit and wait. Oh, the doorbell. Who could it be at this hour? This isn't part of my plan. No, not part of my plan. Get rid of them, whoever they are. Get rid of them. Oh, Mr. Holscombe. Sorry to disturb you, Charles, but I left my pipe here. I looked all over my house for the blasted thing before I remembered I'd left it here. Well, it, it must be in the parlor. Uh, don't bother yourself. I'll get it. It's no bother. Why, you're trembling, Charlie. Did I frighten you when I rang the bell? Well, I... I wasn't expecting you. No, not expecting you. Expecting you. I read of a man in the paper who died of fright when his doorbell rang. Well, just the other day I read it. Very amusing article, too. It was, oh, here's the pipe. Imagine my leaving it behind. Yes, imagine it. Thanks again, Charles. What's this knife doing down here again? Uh, it slipped. Slipped again, did it? Well, well, well. Just like the picture at Peter Smith's. It, let me know if anything happened. Of course. Of course? Of course. Good night, Charles. Good night, Mr. Holscombe. 
Now. The plan. The plan to wait. Wait. Wait for midnight. For midnight. Yes. For midnight. Wait, wait. Oh, what 
is it? Who is it? Where is Charles? <laughs> Listen to his heart. His heart. Listen to his heart. Now it's panic. Later, it will be the forewarning of death. Oh, somebody help me. Now raise the lantern. Slowly, Charles. That's it. That's it. Focus it where the eyes should be. Then slowly open the door of the lantern and let the light shine in that eye. Oh! In the eye of fancy, pluck it out. The eye. No, no, not the knife, not the knife. <laughs> Listen to the heart beat its last beat. It's dead. It's dead. And I'm free of that horror. Free of the eye, of the scorpion eye. The horrible scorpion eye. Clever, clever, Charles. Burying the body where no one will ever suspect it to be. Clever, clever. Yes, I am clever. Underneath the floor of the parlor. Underneath the floor in the parlor. Yes, right here beneath me. I must be careful. Very careful. You are careful. Hammer the nails in straight. The nails are important. Very important. One more nail and then my job is done. One. Two. Now. Now what? Oh, yes. Pull the big upholstered chair over the grave. There. And then... Place the carpet just as it was in front of it. Clever, clever. Yes, I am clever. <laughs> Very clever. The plan has worked. He's dead. He's dead. And no one knows. No one knows? I've cleaned up his bedroom, scrubbed it, put his clothes away. Not even a bloodstain remains to give me away. Not one? Not one. No trace. No trace at all. You're positive. Of course I'm positive. Clever, clever child. Of course I'm clever. Today I'll tell the neighbors my uncle left for the country. Will they believe you? Of course they'll believe me. Believe you? Believe you? And tomorrow, early tomorrow morning, I'll say I'm leaving to join my uncle in the country. It's so easy. I'll disappear. Disappear completely from the world. Forever from that eye. That huge, distorted eye. So I dropped over to this precinct station, Inspector Gelby, and thought I'd tell you about it. Yeah, it's a very strange story, Mr. Holscomb. You say this old man, Mr. Woodward, has never left town for the baths before? Not for the last 20 years, sir. I've been their neighbor for longer than that, really. Hmm. And the nephew, Charles Woodward. Uh, how did he seem this morning? Very much the same as usual. Perhaps a trifle more chipper. Said he was looking forward to joining his uncle at the baths tomorrow. And you are positive this scream you heard last night came from the direction of the Woodward house? Absolutely. I was standing at my window at the time, looking out. It must have been a little past midnight. Suddenly I saw a gleam of light from Mr. Woodward's bedroom, and then the scream. Scream last long? Oh, 
But I'm positive no unimportant explanation is behind the screen. It sounds fishy enough, Mr. Holscomb. Certainly no harm in investigating it. The boy is innocent. He'll be glad enough to allow us to search his uncle's bedroom. If he's guilty, well, we'll know in good time. Yes, in very good time. Mind if I go with you? Not at all, not at all. I'd like to have you along, Holscomb. You're always welcome. This isn't a case of idle curiosity, Inspector. It's just that I enjoy collecting these little tales of death and murder. I've made it a life hobby, and I hate to miss an opportunity. Yes, I hate to miss an opportunity. Search the house, Inspector, if you don't believe me. My uncle's room is right at the top of these stairs. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. My uncle will be very amused by all this when I tell him. Oh, it's not that either I nor Mr. Holscomb suspect anything, you know. No, no, certainly not, Charlie, my boy. Of course not. Yep, this is my uncle's room, as you no doubt know, Mr. Holscomb. Yes, of course it is. Search to your heart's content. Mm, room's in perfect order. If I murdered my uncle mysteriously, there ought to be at least one blood stain on the bedclothes or... Or on the floor. Mind if I undo the bed to look at the sheets? Well, not at all, Inspector. Careful. You are clever. Clever, but be careful. The bed sheets are used, but there's certainly no sign of violence here. Well, naturally, Inspector. And the floors. Hmm, spotless. Your uncle must be a very neat man. Exceedingly neat. Isn't he, Mr. Holtzkoff? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm sorry we bothered you like this, sir. But you know it's better to be on the safe side. Well, I... I understand perfectly, Inspector. I'm sorry, Charles. Perfectly all right, Mr. Holscomb. I would have done the same thing in your shoes. Uh, won't you gentlemen join me in the parlor for a cup of tea before you leave? Well, now, we'd be too much trouble. No trouble at all, I guarantee you. No trouble at all. Here, I, I'd better close the door to Uncle's room before dust blows through from the hallway. You know my uncle's fetish. Ah, I'll join you gentlemen in the parlor shortly after I fetch the tea. <laughs> a very amusing story. A very amusing story, Mr. Holtz. I always thought so, Inspector Gilby. You collect stories of crime, don't you, Mr. Holtz? Yes, indeed. I found some prize ones in my day. Yes, I, I imagine you have. He'd enjoy your story, Charles. Yes, he'd enjoy it. Enjoy it. Uh, pass the sugar, Inspector, please. Huh? Oh, yes, here you are. Listen, Charles. What is it? Listen, listen. What'd you say, Charles? Nothing. I have a very amusing story about a woman in India. I read it in the paper the other morning just as I was eating some very fine orange marmalade. Listen, listen. It's the heart, Charles. The old man's heart. The heart. The heart. You can hear it. No. No, it can't be. What can't be? Oh, he denies the truth of my story even before I tell it. Uh, what about the woman in India? Can it be? Can it be the beating of the old man's heart? Well, she murdered a rich uncle of hers. Can a man I murdered? Alive. It's getting louder and louder. Louder and louder. Why did she murder him? No known motive. They're playing with me. They're both watching me. Watching me. Watching you. Watching you. How did she murder him? Cut him in little pieces and hid him under the flooring in her bedroom. Under the flooring? Under the flooring. Making a mockery of a, a living horror. They know, Charles. They know. They know, Charles. They know. What's the matter, Charles? Well, you look ill. Ill? Ill. Make it stop. Make it stop. They're playing with you. Playing with no. you. No. Watch him, Inspector. He's, he's fooled. Don't play with me like this. You can hear it. I can see it in your faces. In your evil, grinning faces. You can hear it. The heart. The 
telltale heart. Return from death. Admit you can hear it. It's becoming louder and louder. Louder and louder. 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 Stop it. Stop it. I admit the deed. I admit I murdered my uncle last night. Only for the love of God. Make his hideous heart stop beating. You murdered him. Yes. Yes, I murdered him. Tear up the plank underneath his chair. Rescue the body. But stop the beating of the telltale heart. Telltale heart. Telltale heart. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought to you the story... The Telltale Heart. Bellkeeper, pull the bell. One week before Christmas in 1943, Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart from the series The Weird Circle. It came to you from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Our audio engineers are Kenny Pirog and Douglas Bell. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. We're going to continue our commemoration of Edgar Allan Poe's birthday tonight with a few more of his short stories as they appeared on the NBC University Theater in 1949. As befits Mr. Poe's status in the history of American letters, NBC assembled a distinguished group to bring these stories to radio. The writer George Lefferts, the radio executive Andrew C. Love, who was also a radio director of considerable range, he did everything from Amos and Andy to The Eternal Light to Frank Sinatra's Rocky Fortune. And Joseph Schildkraut, Georgia Backus, and Parley Bear, among other great radio actors. Originally broadcast March 6, 1949, it's Tales of Edgar Allan Poe from NBC University Theater. is the NBC University Theater, bringing you a full-hour dramatization of Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, starring Joseph Schildkraut. We bring you one of the most extraordinary men of letters ever to put pen to paper in America. 
And we bring you three tales from his pen. First, Nosology, followed by The Cask of Amontillado, and finally, The Fall of the House of Usher. The author, of course, is Edgar Allan Poe, whose feverish dreams inspired tales both awesome and beautiful, tales which won for him a unique place among the greats of American literature. Here now is Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. called me mad. Perhaps I am. It has never been settled, really, whether madness is or is not the loftiest intelligence. Let it be assumed, therefore, that I, Edgar Allan Poe, am mad, and that I'm about to entertain you with three products of my imaginative but eccentric mind. The first of these, a curtain raiser, I will entitle only A Comic Mask. Mr. Conductor, if you please... Some comic music. My name uh, is, uh, uh, let's see, I believe it's Jones. Yes, that's right, Robert Jones. I am, uh, that is to say, I was a great man. I was born at a rather tender age in the city of Pumfudge, latitude 600, longitude 066. Perhaps you've heard of me? No? Oh, what a pity. Very well, I'll tell you about myself. When I was born, my first act in life was to take hold of my nose with both hands and pull vigorously, thus. This caused my mother, who naturally was present at my birth, to remark to my father... Robert, look. Our boy is a genius. Oh, my dear, I weep for joy. Believe me, I weep for joy. Before I was five years old, I had chosen my career in life. Namely, nosology. I pursued it avidly. Each morning... I gave my nose a strong pull. In the science of nosology, I soon came to understand that, provided a man had a nose sufficiently conspicuous, he might, by merely following it, arrive at a lionship, an honor much to be desired. My father, who had always been frustrated in his own ambition to become a successful mountebank, determined that I should achieve my goal. I remember distinctly how. Each evening, he would help me with my exercises. One, two, three, tweak. One, two, three, tweak. One, two, three, tweak. Uh, stop. Stop, my dear boy. Uh, remember, these tweaking exercises give the nose plasticity, character. Yes, father. Uh, bear in mind, therefore, that the tweak must be vigorous and forthright. Thus. <laughs> yes, father. Very well. We'll now practice uh, turning up the nose contemptuously. Now, observe closely, my boy. Thus. One, two, turn up thusly. One, two, contemptuously. One, two... Father! Father! What is it, sir? Father, I don't... Well, what's the trouble? (laughs) 
One day, uh, when I had come of age, my father asked me if I would step into his study, and this I did. You wish to speak to me, father? Uh, my boy, it's time that you and I had a serious talk. Yes, father. Now, first of all, tell me, uh, what is the chief end of your existence? Why, father, to master the science of nosology. That is correct, my boy. And now, uh, can you tell me... What is the exact meaning of a nose? The exact meaning. A nose, my father, has been variously defined by some 6,000 authorities. Hmm? Let's see, it is now exactly three minutes before 12 noon. We shall have time to get through most of the definitions, I think, before midnight. To commence, then, father. The nose, according to Bartholinius, is that protuberance, that bump, that prow which precedes a man when he's given himself into a lot of... When I had completed the last of the 6,000 definitions, my father drew me to his side and said... My boy... Yes, father? Your education is finished. Thank you, father. It's time now for you to go out into the world and scuffle for yourself. Yes, father. Uh, tell me, my boy, uh, you know what you must do, of course. Why, of course, father. I must always follow my nose. Exactly, my boy. Exactly. <laughs> Giving my nose a pull or two right on the spot, I marched out into the streets of Pampage to seek my fortune. As I made my way up the main thoroughfare, astounded citizens pointed at me with admiration and respect. Is it possible? Unbelievable. Mommy, look, a rhinoceros. Who is he? What is he? Oh! Ignoring these peasants, I blew my nose loudly. <clears throat> and continued on my way until I reached a fine-looking studio bearing a sign which read, Signor Tintintino, portrait painter to royalty by appointment to the king and by rendezvous with the queen. I stepped inside. And there was the Duchess of Bableur sitting for a portrait. Behind her stood the Marquis holding her pet poodle. At her side stood the Earl supporting the Marquis. At an easel stood Signor Tintintino. I approached this great artist and slowly, very slowly turned up my nose. Good. Shocking. What a nose, Signore. How much you take for this nose? I must paint this nose, Mamma Mia. <laughs> One thousand pounds. One thousand pounds? Madre, turn to the light. Eh? With so, pleasure. Uh, oh, I simply must touch it. Uh, May carefully, I? carefully, carefully, madam. This is really a very valuable piece. <laughs> you, you, you show she's quite original. My dear Signor Tintintino, I assure you that I've raised this nose from a tiny little nostril. <laughs> Admirab, I give you one hundred pounds. Sorry, a thousand. A two hundred. Sorry, a thousand. A six hundred. Sorry, a thousand. Nine. Sorry, a thousand. Very well. Good. She's done. One thousand pounds, and I'm gonna paint her this very morning. <laughs> this was indeed a stroke of genius. In a week's time, Signor Tintintino's portrait of my nose was hung in the Royal Academy. Overnight, I became a celebrity. I wrote a pamphlet on nosology, and I sent the Queen a first edition, enclosing a reproduction of Tintintino's masterpiece. Why, the Prince of Wales invited me to dinner, and what a dinner. The people who were there, why, every one of them a lion, a giant among men. As guest of honor, I, of course, was introduced around by the Prince. <laughs> <laughs> 
Practically no nose, your princeship. No nose. <laughs> oh, here's another chap I should like you to meet. Why, gladly. Uh, Sir Delphinius Polyglot. Sir Delphinius? Uh, your Highness. I should like you to meet... Don't tell me, don't tell me. Let me guess. Pinocchio. Droll <laughs> fellow. Uh, and... Uh, Cinemel. Hardly. <laughs> Why... <laughs> then this... Uh, this must be the Mr. Jones. It is. It is. Yes, indeed, it was quite a dinner. Even Signor Tintintino was there. He discoursed upon Latour and Chambertin. The president of Pumford University made a speech. The eminent archaeologist, Ferdinand Fitzelfutzelspa, spoke briefly for several hours on internal fires and tertiary formations and things like that. And finally, of course, of course, it was my turn to speak. My topic. <laughs> you guessed it, you guessed it. I merely turned up my nose and I spoke of myself. Oh, marvelous, marvelous. Thank you. Clever man. <laughs> superb, absolutely superb. Thank you. The very next morning, Her Grace the Duchess paid me a visit in my apartment. Somewhat plump, but a charming little woman, my heart went out to her at once. You darling creature. <laughs> I know you must simply be thronged with admirers, <sighs> but I said to myself, I must. I simply must meet this fabulous man. And here I am. Why, I'm honored, Your Grace. <laughs> Don't you think it was rather daring of me to come to your apartment, unescorted? <laughs> but then, I've always been one to seize the bull by the nose. And I have always admired a certain measure of boldness in women, Your Grace. Oh, charming man. <laughs> you simply must attend the ball I'm giving tomorrow night. Oh. You will come, pretty creature. Paul, I'm sorry I had promised the Queen. The Elector of Bledinoff will be there. The Elector of... I'm not familiar. Not familiar with the Elector of Bledinoff? Why, no. Why, my dear man, he is said to have the largest nose in all the world. Oh, Your Grace. Uh, in Europe, at any rate. Certainly not in England, madame. Please, observe. Uh, I'll admit it does look rather long. Well, it is rather long. Uh, if you come, we can compare your nose with the electors and, and settle the controversy once and for all. Your Grace, I shall be there. You definitely will come. Why, Your Grace, with all my heart. Oh, no, Mr. Jones. With all your nose. <laughs> yes, with all my nose. I uh, had heard of this fellow. There's blood enough. A pretentious boar from the low country. Well, next night excitement ran high at the Duchess's. The rooms were crowded with suffocation. Wagers were placed. Duels challenged. A thousand pounds on blood enough. By a nose. Taken and doubled. I say Jones by ten millimeters. Blood enough. Jones! <laughs> Lady 
Ladies and gentlemen, may I present our distinguished guest from the Low Country, the Elector of Vladinov. And now, the British contender, our own Mr. Jones. Look, she's going to introduce them. Mr. Jones, the elector of Bloodenoff. You call that a nose? Gentlemen, please. Your Grace, I, I sincerely regret this incident, but the mosquito bite which this gentleman dignifies by the title of nose offends me. Sir, may I tell you that you're a baboon? That, sir, I will not countenance. Have at you. Oh, my second will call upon you in the morning, sir. There simply was no other way. His nose, alack and alas, was bigger than mine. Very well, we met next morning upon the field of honor. Our weapons, pistols at 30 paces. We faced each other. I gave my pride a twist and sounded my klaxon contemptuously. He blew his. A pitiful little blow. And the referee counted off the paces. 28, 29, 30. Fire! Agbler, the deed was done. I had shut up his nose. Now there was no one in the entire world with a nose equal my own. Ah, my pride. My joy of a nose. I returned to the palace and discovered that a reception had been prepared. Evidently, news of my victory over blood enough had preceded me. I entered and approached the Duchess, but when I reached to kiss her hand, alas, she snubbed me. That's all she said. Hmm. Your Grace, I don't understand. There is nothing to understand, Mr. Jones. But haven't you heard, Your Grace? I won the duel. I shut the elector's nose right off his face. Your presence is no longer required. Well, won't somebody explain you, sir? What? Mm. Dolts. Perhaps you, sir. Noodle. Noodle. But this reception, gentlemen, for whom has it been prepared? For whom, sir? Yes. For whom but the elector of blood enough? What? I was baffled. Nay, I was chagrined. My nose wilted here. Yet the facts were there. I had won. I was the uncontested nose champion of the entire world. Yet a reception of honor had been prepared for my defeated adversary, the Elector of Bloodenough. Shunned, scorned, carrying my proboscis at a deflected 45-degree angle, I slunk from the court. I appealed to my friend the prince, but all he said was... Ah, that's all he said. Things went from bad to worse. 
My pamphlet on nosology no longer supported me. My portrait was sent back from the royal galleries and finally, in utter defeat, I returned home to live with Papa. I am home, Father. Yes, my son. Father, I am a failure in nosology. I know, my son. But why, Father? Why? Sit down, my boy. Yes. That's better. My son. Yes, Father. You have learned a sad truth about life. Yes, but what truth, Father? You've learned that a man with a nose more conspicuous than others can be a lion among men. Until he overshoots his mark as you have overshot yours. Yes, but how, Father? My boy, all men have noses. But the elector of Bloodenoth has no nose at all. And with such, there's no competing. Oh! Surely men accuse me unjustly of being macabre and morbid. I have a delightful sense of humor. If you don't believe me, just listen to another of my tales. This one I have entitled... The Cask of Amontillado. On the coat of arms of my family, the Montresors, is graven Nemo me impunilatsesit, meaning no one harms me with impunity. The coat of arms itself is a huge human foot done in gold against the field of Asia Blue. The foot crushes a serpent whose fangs are embedded in its heel. I tell you this only so you will understand why I had to act as I did. And while I'm telling you about it, have a drink. A drink of Amontillado. The real thing, too. I know. I know because I have the word of that connoisseur of wine, Signor Fortunato. <laughs> My old friend, Fortunato. The thousand injuries of this Fortunato I had borne as best I could through the years, but when he ventured on insults, I vowed revenge. It was at the height of the carnival season in Venice when I saw him in the crowd, dressed in the costume of a jester. I uh, was genuinely pleased to see him. Hey, Fortunato! Fortunato! I beg your pardon, sir. Hey, Fortunato! Ah, Well, 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 my dear friend, I am glad to see you. Oh, how goes it, Montresor? Excellently oh, well. I'm having a most wonderful time. <laughs> I'm in my second childhood, but I haven't seen you in weeks. I was afraid you were avoiding me. Avoiding you? Never. Good, oh, good. <laughs> but, my friend, you are luckily met. Oh, come over here in this doorway out of the crowd. Hmm? Oh, very well. What's on your mind? Listen, Fortunato. Only today I have received a barrel of what passes for Amontillado wine. Amonti? Not really. Well, I have some doubts. Amontillado? Well, as I say, I have some doubts. <sighs> Amontillado. Oh, when did I last taste Amontillado? <laughs> but I see you are having a little vacation, and therefore I will go to Lucchese. If anyone can tell a good vintage, it certainly is Lucchese. Ah, Lucchese, Lucchese. Lucchese has the nose of a pig. Come. Let us go. Go? Go where? 
to your wine ball. Oh, no, 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 my friend. I couldn't possibly impose. Oh, I insist. No, no, the vaults are damp and you have a bad cough. I will not be swayed. But the vaults are very deep. Your answer. <laughs> you insist? I insist. Very well, my friend. Let us go to the vaults of Montresor. Careful, careful, my friend. These steps are rather slippery. Uh, your vaults are very deep. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Tell me, how long have you been troubled by that bad cough? Oh, it's nothing. Uh, perhaps we should turn back. I won't hear of no, it. No, no, no. I really feel we should. You must be careful. You're a man to be missed, after all. Are you not rich mm. and respected, beloved? By some, my wife. You see, for me, it wouldn't really matter, but for you, no, 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 no. I shall engage Lucchese. Enough. I shall not die of a little cough. <laughs> well, if you will not be deterred, at least let me offer you a drink of Medoc. Here, we will select one of these bottles. <sighs> look. Look at that dust. Fifty years old. Here, drink, my friend. <sighs> Good. Will you not join me? Very well. I drink to those who are buried here. Buried? Oh, yes, my ancestors used these vaults as a dungeon. Oh, oh I see. To your long life, my friend. Ah, now come, let us proceed to the Amontillado. One moment. Yes? Do I hear water? Yes, we are under the river now. Why, is the moisture perhaps too much for your cough? <laughs> I shall survive. <laughs> Montresor. Yes, what? What? What is that? Hanging, swinging slowly to and fro in the passageway ahead. Oh, that? <laughs> Nothing, just a skeleton. Uh, a skeleton? Yes, my ancestors. You see, uh, very vengeful people. Careful now, careful. Don't bump against it. <laughs> Is it... is it much further to the Amontillado? Just a few steps. Oh, 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 come, 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 through the archway ahead. Here we are. This chamber? Mm-hmm. I see no Amontillado. Patience, patience. You shall, my friend. But first, permit me to point out the interesting architectural structure of this cell. As you see, it is circular, completely circular with a very narrow doorway. Yes, yes, yes. The Amontillado. <laughs> yes, the Amontillado, in a second. And over there are chains stapled to the wall to fasten about the waist of the victims. Uh, let me show you. Uh, step over here, please. Montresor, this, this is all very interesting, but... Just a moment now, just a moment. Stand still. That's <laughs> Very interesting. But, but now, if you will remove them. Of course, my friend. Of course, I was merely demonstrating. Of course, of course. That's <laughs> uh, strange. <laughs> this key here seems stuck in the lock. Well, perhaps I can work it. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny, my friend, if I had to get a locksmith now to saw you loose? Montresor, for heaven's sake. Oh, now, now, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> here. Here, yeah, why don't you have another drink of this made dog? No, 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 the Amontillado. Oh, yes, I forgot. Of course, the Amontillado, of course. I'll fetch it. Wait, it's right out here. There. There. Taste it and drink. Well? It is <laughs> Amontillado. Amontillado. Drink up, drink up. 
Have some more. Have some more. Really? Nonsense, nonsense. One more tip. Perhaps one. That's better. Oh, it makes the head go round and round, Amontillado. Doesn't it? Nothing like one last drink. Last drink? Before we leave. Oh, but, but these chains I'm wearing. Yes, I know. I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if I had to stay here the rest of my life and drink up all of your Amontillado? <laughs> Very funny indeed. <laughs> Tell me, uh, you don't mind if I do some work while you drink, eh? No, no, go ahead. Thank go you, ahead. thank you. <laughs> what are you doing kneeling in the doorway, Montresor? Oh, I'm just mixing up some water. Oh, like baking a cake. That's right, like baking a cake. <laughs> baking a cake. <laughs> when do you suppose I'll get these chains off? Soon, my friend, soon. No hurry. Nothing I like better than to sit here and drink a Montiato and watch you work. <laughs> what are you doing now? Hmm? Now, my friend, I am practicing the art of the mason. <laughs> Isn't it funny? <laughs> I could swear you were laying bricks. <laughs> laying a row of bricks across the doorway. <laughs> and I'll have to step over them when I leave. Whoops. Oh, my cup is empty. Empty? Well, wait, I'll get you some more. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Gotcha, amico. Yeah. <sighs> Montresor. Montresor. Yes, my friend? Tell me, why do you build a wall of bricks in the doorway? To protect you, my friend. Oh, but if you build a wall of bricks, how am I going to get out? That is exactly the point, Fortunato. You are not going to get out. Montresor. You see, it's quite simple. In a little while, these bricks will come up to your waist, and then to your chest, and then to your... Eyes, and then... Please, Montresor. I want to get out of here. No. Montresor! Montresor! Oh, nonsense. <laughs> drink, drink, my friend. It'll do your cough good. Drink! <laughs> oh, a very good joke, Montresor. Isn't it? Excellent joke. Oh, we shall have many a rich laugh about it at the Palazzo. <laughs> Over our wine. Naturally. Uh, Amontillado. Oh, oh, yes. Amontillado. Yes, Amontillado. <laughs> but come. Come, Montresor. Stop playing with those bricks and remove these chains from me. Which chains? <sighs> come. Let us be gone. Yes. Right. Let us be gone. For the love of God, Montresor. Yes. For the love of God. Montresor! What's the matter? Hey. Hey. What's the matter? Speak. Speak. You mustn't be dead yet. You mustn't speak. Don't cheat me like that. You couldn't. You couldn't cheat me like that, you... You couldn't cheat me like that, you... 
couldn't cheat me like that. From Hollywood, the NBC University Theater is bringing you Joseph Schildkraut in a radio version of Three Tales by Edgar Allan Poe. Today's broadcast is part of a series devoted to the classic works of Anglo-American literature. If you're interested in supplementing your enjoyment of these productions with home study under college supervision, be sure to listen to the announcement at the close of this program. And now, our intermission commentator, Dr. Harvey Webster, Associate Professor of English at the University of Louisville. Speaking from Louisville, Kentucky, here is Dr. Harvey Webster. It is the peculiar misfortune of America's first great writer of fiction that he has been reprinted, retaught, and reread so often at his mediocre or worst that few people of intelligence continue to take him seriously after they escape from high school or college. Somehow, Poe's name gets associated with the obvious horror of the telltale heart, with his too many, too unconvincing followers in pulp magazines, with an unhappy, thoroughly neurotic life. This is natural, unfortunate, and wrong. For Poe, at his very frequent and very frequently ignored best, has communicated some experiences more vividly than any other writer of English. His best stories, I believe, are those in which he communicates the pleasure of thinking, of, to quote, that moral activity which disentangles. It is beautiful to watch the minds his mind controls at work. Remember Monsieur Dupin's thoroughly logical explanation of how he knew his friend's unspoken thoughts. Legrand's methodical ingenuity in solving the cipher in the gold bug. The clever quickness with which the old man saved himself from the maelstrom. Anyone that enjoys mental activity has liked or will like these stories. Next best, perhaps quite as good, are Poe's stories of psychological horror. In these two, the moral activity that disentangles is important, though here the disentangling is of abnormal mental states that are, after all, only exaggerations of what we consider normal. To a greater or lesser degree, we all know the second William Wilson. We have all felt something of the fascination with death and decay that becomes Roderick Usher. We have all been attacked by that imp of the perverse that propels the main characters of the black cat to self-destruction. Poe shows what Freud has demonstrated. The abnormal is the normal magnified. Poe's great accomplishment within a limited area makes us forget his faults and imitators. By a curious law of compensation, what was his misery is our gain. His great powers of intellect survive in spite of or because of his suffering in one of the most distinguished and uneven bodies of work that has been left by a writer of the first order. Our radio version of Three Tales by Edgar Allan Poe, starring Joseph Schilkraut, will continue from Hollywood after a brief pause for station identification.
Edgar Allan Poe have found life a long and weird catalog of miseries from which to select my themes. And of all these, the most awful, perhaps, is to be buried alive. Uh, now, don't deny it happens. The boundaries which divide life from death are at best shadowy. Let me tell you a tale about such an interment. I call it The Fall of the House of Usher. The day was dark and soundless, and black clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens. Toward evening, I caught a glimpse of something in the distance, and I spurred my horse toward it. As we approached, I could make out the hideous outlines of the House of Usher. The house was old, the masonry crumbling. It was built on a rock in the center of a deep tarn or pool of stagnant, rank water. Overall, there hung the atmosphere of a neglected vault of the gloom of the dead. I dismounted from my horse and walked across the wooden bridge that led to the great door. I felt a vague terror rising inside me, a desire to turn back and ride away. As I fought the urge, I found myself reaching into the breast pocket of my coat where lay the letter. The letter which had brought me to the house of Usher. My dear Hugh, this letter will be brief and perhaps somewhat confusing to you because I write from the depths of an upsetting illness. Whatever its merits, please... Please, in the name of our former friendship, do not ignore its plea. I must see you, Hugh, as soon as possible. You are the only friend I can trust in this, my hour of need. I enclose a map directing you to the house of Usher. Your very dear friend, Roderick Usher. So, I stood now before the huge door of the home of Usher. As I released the knocker, my eye caught a barely perceptible fissure, a crack which extended from the roof down the wall in zigzag fashion to become lost in the sullen waters of the tarn. Yes, this is the house of Usher, is it not? Who asks? Sir Hugh Catlin, a friend of Sir Roderick Usher. Come in, please. Thank you. Uh, my horse will is... be taken care of. Thank you. <laughs> Good heavens, is the whole house as dark as this? Sir Roderick prefers the darkness, sir. That's strange. As I recall, he always detested the dark. Yes, sir. This way, sir. You'll be so good as to wait in this hall, sir. Oh, thank you. I'll tell Sir Roderick. Thank you. I stood outside a dark, carved door at one end of a long hallway. In the semi-darkness, as I stood there, waiting, I felt eyes upon me. And then, as my own eyes grew accustomed to the dimness, 
I saw, standing only a few yards from me, a young woman in a white, gauze-like gown. For a long moment, we stared at each other. And then before I could speak, she turned and left, singing as she went. I saw thee on thy bridal day When a burning blush came o'er thee Though happiness around thee made The world Sir Roderick will see you, sir. Oh, oh, thank you. By the way, uh, is Sir Roderick married now? Oh, no, sir. Is anyone living here beside himself? Perhaps you'd better let him answer that, sir. This way. Welcome to the house of Usher, Hugh. You're looking well, almost 13 years, isn't it? How are you? I'm fine, Usher. How are you? As you see me. Uh, come. Here, sit down beside me. Well, what do you think of my ancestral hall? Beautiful, but rather dismal with all these hangings and thick carpets. Do you mind if I turn up the don't, lamp? Don't touch that lamp, please. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Forgive me, I have been suffering with an affliction of the eyes recently. A single ray of light burns my eyes like the noon sun. Oh, I'm sorry to hear it. That explains the darkness, of course. And will you have a glass of sherry? Oh, yes, thank you. Here. What, you drink with me? I'd rather not. Oh. It's good. <laughs> well, uh... How do you find me, Hugh? Hmm? Am I not well-preserved, still rather handsome? <laughs> Time seems to have treated you very well, Usher. I find you... Yes. You were about to say... <laughs> no. Yes, you were about to say you find me altered. Come, come. Yes, I was. How? Different, somehow. Different how? Agitated, unnerved. So, I... I tried so very hard to conceal it. I told myself I will act very casual and normal. When he comes here, he'll never sense it. What are you hiding, Usher? Your letter mentioned an illness. Oh, nothing, nothing. Just a slight nervous affliction. It'll pass over. Why did you send for me? Because you are the only person I could turn to. The only one who would understand. Understand what? Uh, Hugh, do you recall discussions we had once concerning euthanasia? Mercy killing? Yes. Exactly, yes. We, we spoke of it in school. Uh, you always said you were not morally opposed to it in extreme cases. Are you still of that opinion? Why do you ask? Can you not guess? No. Look at me, Hugh, please. Can you not see what's happened to me? Only that you seem highly agitated. Agit... <laughs> Man, friend, are you blind? Can't you see I'm going mad? Oh, nonsense. No, 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 not nonsense. This is a family affliction. I watched it destroy my father. Fear of lights? Not just light, my friend, everything. 
everything, all my senses have become unbearably acute. You see, the most insipid food, for instance, grates on my taste. A small little sound like the drop of water is thunder in my ears. My skin will tolerate nothing but the softest of silks. Odors, oh, flowers, flowers suffocate me. The closing of a door, music. Why, you, you, you know how I love music. I remember you played the organ, and very well. Well, too. the only musical sound I can possibly tolerate it is this lute here, the tuned very softly. You... You've been like this very long? So long I can scarcely remember when I first drew these curtains to shut out the light or when I first hung these drapes to deaden the sound. Usher, when were you last outside this house? I have not set foot outside this house or seen daylight, my friend, for 13 years. Good heavens, man. What you need is to breathe fresh air and see daylight. Oh. This morbid atmosphere is enough to induce melancholy in a clown. It's oh. like living in a tomb. Oh. I know your problems will not be solved so easily. What would you say of a man who cannot take a step outside his own house? I'd say it was... All right, say it. Say it. Insane. Insane. Say it. Also, there must be some cure for Yes, this. one. What? Death. Death? No. Remember your philosophy. You've thought of suicide. I haven't the strength. I'm even afraid of that. And that's why I ask you to come. I don't understand. I think you do. I asked you here because of your views on euthanasia. You're not asking me to kill you. Exactly. You're mad. I admit that. You're worse than mad. You, if there's an ounce of pity... I should listen to me. This desire, this need to destroy yourself is caused by something. Perhaps it's something you've done. You wince at that. Tell me, let me help you. Too late. It's never too late. Confession will be the first step in your cure. You really want to know? I do. You do. Very well. Then follow me. Where do you take To me? the tower wing. It isn't far. What's there? There. There, my friend. Is the curse. The curse and the blessing of Sir Roderick Usher. Madeline. Who is it? Dear, I want you to meet someone. There is no one to meet. Come here, dear. No. Please, Madeline. It's all right, really. Hugh, this is the Lady Madeline. How do you do? They're... They're prettier in springtime. I beg your pardon? My violets. They've shrunk. The darkness. Darkness always kills living things. Do you find it so when you lie alone? Well, oh, well, yes. Yes, I do. Good. Then I'll sing you a song. By all means. Would you like a purple one? Or oh, any color you say. The blue ones last long. Yes. Shall, shall I sing for you? Do. I saw thee once on thy bridal Oh, come, Hugh, come. When it burning Well? Who is she? Isn't she lovely? She's mad. 
Is this house filled with nothing but madness? I told you we are cursed from birth. She's your wife? No. No. My sister. I see. Do you? I think I do. How long has she been thus? It came upon her gradually. Please come, let us go down. Yes, you see, Hugh, when I went away to school, she was just a delightful little golden-haired child. Why, she worshipped me always. When I returned, she was a woman and I was a man. Hugh, I swear to you, our relationship was innocent and yet... Yet that strange love between... Oh, God, God, forgive me. Control yourself. For seven years, seven long years, I've watched her becoming progressively worse and... And then my own affliction began. Hush. Where there's no sin, there should be no guilt. Tell me, Hugh, is it possible that a man can suffer thus for an uncommitted sin? Such things are not unknown. Now you see why I turn to you. But I am no doctor. I don't want healing. I want punishment. No. If men were punished for their evil thoughts, we would all turn on the rack. Usher. Let me spend a few days here with you. We'll read and talk as we did in school. Mm. I remember your poetry was very exciting. Uh, Have you written anything lately? No. Well, then recite the old ones for me. And and play for me. Mm. Come, we shall fight this melancholy, you and I. And together we shall triumph over it. Thank you. You really like it? Oh, it's really very beautiful. You've improved, really. Thank you. Uh, uh-huh. Why do you stop? Because I realize that I just now smiled for the first time in years. You see, you're getting better already. Uh-huh. Go on, though. Recite another. Very well. You really want one? Of course I do. All right. I call this one here the Haunted Palace. In the greenest of our valleys by good angels tenanted... Once a fair and stately palace, radiant palace reared its head. Banners yellow, glorious, golden on its roof did float and flow. This, all this, was in the olden time, long ago. But evil things in robes of sorrow assailed this fine estate. Oh, let us mourn, for never morrow shall dawn upon it desolate. And travelers now within that valley through red-litten windows see vast forms that move fantastically to a discordant melody while like rapid ghostly river through the pale door a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh but smile no more. No Someone is coming. Well, I hear nothing. Yes, come in. Well? Sir Roderick, you'd better come at once. Come where? The tower room, sir. It's the Lady Madeline. Good. Ma- Madeline, what's wrong? I-, I don't know, sir, but you'd best hurry. I'm afraid something terrible has happened. Mm. Well, sir. Why do you stand and stare? She's dead. What? Dead. 
But, but that's impossible. Why only a few days? Her cataleptic seizure. She's had them before. This time it was fatal. My dear friend. Is there anything I can do? Yes. You've only to name it. Please help me bury her. After the Lady Madeline had been encoffined, Usher and I alone bore the body to its last resting place. Usher led the way down a long passageway, down beneath the castle and then along a reeking stone passageway. Every few hundred paces we would stop and Usher would unlock a huge copper-sheathed door. As we passed through door after door, I noticed that the walls were covered with the remnants of the chains and bolts of the Inquisitor. We are here. What place is this? The lowest vault beneath the house. The floor has a strange ring. Yes, it is sheathed in copper. This was once used as a storage room for powder. Please lower the coffin. Very well. There. Uh, help me raise the lid. Usher, in heaven's name. One look, please, one look. Oh, isn't she lovely? See how... Even in death, a faint rose tinges the cheeks. Farewell, sister. Beloved sister. Farewell, daughter of Usher. Fasten the lid. Will you not pray? I cannot pray. Then I shall pray. If you wish, but not for her. For whom, then? For me, my friend. Please pray for me. That her image may never return to torture my poor brain. For some days after the burial of the Lady Madeline, a change came over Roderick Usher. He roamed the padded halls of the House of Usher, his head to one side, as if in an attitude of listening. It seemed to me as if his mind were laboring under some horrible, oppressive secret which he was struggling to tell me. His attitude, his listening for some imaginary sound, began to infect me. I found myself doing the same. And as the days went by, I too succumbed to the somber influence of the House of Usher. It was on the eighth day after the entombment of the Lady Madeline. A storm had been brewing. That night I could not sleep. I was overpowered by a sense of impending horror. Then on my door there came a rapping. Who's there? Who is it? Speak up! You... You, I'm afraid. I'm afraid as no man has ever been afraid before. I'm sure you've been living in this morbid house so long you've become like it. So have I almost. You, I hear something. No, no, I hear nothing. Now, you must relax. You please read to me. With, uh, it, it may take my mind off the storm and off this house. Of course it will. Uh, now, you just sit there. Uh, Listen, I'll read from, uh, from the Trist of Sir Lancelot, mm, all right? Yes. Yeah. Are you listening? Yes, go on, please. Uh, and Ethelred, seeking entry into the hermit's house, uplifted his mace, and striking at the door, made room for his gauntleted hand. 
And now, pulling sturdily, he ripped it asunder so that the noise of the dry and hollow-sounding wood reverberated through the forest. What's the matter, Hugh? Why do you stop? I thought I heard something. Uh-huh. <laughs> this atmosphere must be upsetting my nerves. I'll go on. Oh, no. reverberating <laughs> through the forest. Now, entering the door, Ethelred saw a dragon of scaly and prodigious demeanor. And Ethelred uplifted his mace and struck the dragon, whereupon it fell with a dreadful shriek. Usher, did you hear that? Raid. You did hear that, didn't you? Raid. And now the champion... And now the champion approached the wall of the room, whereon hung a great brass shield, which in sooth tarried not for his coming, but fell at his feet with a mighty and terrible ringing sound. He was... Usher! Did you hear that? I mean, did you hear that? Hear it? Yes, my friend. Yes, I hear it and I have heard it long. Many minutes, many hours, many days. I have heard it and dare not speak. You know why? Do you know? I'll tell you. My friend, because I have put her living into her tomb. Didn't I tell you my senses were acute? Now I will tell you. And I heard her first feeble movements in her hollow coffin. I heard them eight days ago, yes. And then I heard the rending of her coffin, the grating of the iron hinges of a prison, her poor struggles in that copper archway of the vault. Mm. And now she comes. You're insane. Comes. No, she comes, I tell you. Haven't you heard the footsteps on the stair? I tell you, this very instant, she stands outside that door. There's no one there. I tell you, she stands outside that door. Her hand is on that latch. Don't you see her? Turn that latch. What? It's it's uh, beloved, beloved Madeline. For a moment she stood trembling and reeling to and fro upon the threshold, blood upon her white robes, and then, with a low moaning cry, she fell upon her brother and bore him to his death at my very feet. From that mansion, I fled aghast. The storm was at its fury as I crossed the bridge. I turned. The radiance of the blood-red moon was shining through the widening fissure that cracked the walls of the house from roof to base. And suddenly, there came a fierce whirlwind, and the entire orb of the moon burst into my sight. The mighty walls rushed asunder. And there was tumultuous sound like the voice of a thousand waters. And then, the deep, dank tarn at my feet closed sullenly, silently, eternally over the fragments of the house of Usher.
have been listening to Tales of Edgar Allan Poe, an NBC University Theater production starring Joseph Schildkraut. Next week at this same time, we will bring you another classic of Anglo-American literature, Selections from the Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. The present semester of the NBC University Theater is devoted to the classics of Anglo-American literature from the time of Henry Fielding to that of Henry James. If you wish, you may learn more about these authors and their works by enrolling in the college-supervised courses now being offered in connection with the NBC University Theater. The University of Tulsa, Kansas State Teachers College, and Washington State College have now completed their plans for offering such a course in the coming months. Thus joining the University of Louisville, whose established home study plan is already serving listeners in another area of the nation. For information, then, as to how you may enhance your knowledge through these courses, write to the NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington State College, Pullman, Washington, Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas, or the University of Tulsa at Tulsa, Oklahoma. I'll repeat that. For information, write to the NBC University Theater in care of the University of Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky, Washington State College, Pullman, Washington, Kansas State Teachers College, Pittsburgh, Kansas, or the University of Tulsa at Tulsa, Oklahoma. The tales of Edgar Allan Poe were adapted for radio by George Lefferts. Our intermission commentator was Dr. Harvey Webster. Starred was Joseph Schildkraut, internationally famed star of stage and screen, who was heard as Robert in Nosology, Montresor in The Cask of Amontillado, and Roderick Usher in The Fall of the House of Usher, which co-starred Barry Kroger. Lester Sharp was Fortunato in The Cask of Amontillado. Our cast included Stanley Waxman, Georgia Bacchus, Stephen Chase, Miriam Jay, Don Diamond, Harley Bear, Tony Barrett, Shep Mencken, Jack Crucian, Margaret Brayton, Lynn Allen, your announcer, Don Stanley. The original musical score was composed and conducted by Dr. Albert Harris. The director of the University Theater is Andrew C. Love. Next week, be with us again for the NBC University Theater dramatization of the Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens, starring Edmund Gwen as Mr. Pickwick. Today's NBC University Theater production of the Tales of Edgar Allan Poe came to you from Hollywood's Radio City. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Three Tales of Edgar Allan Poe from the NBC University Theater in the winter of 1949 and from one of the greatest masters of the short story, whose 211th birthday is tonight. 
That commemoration brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineers Douglas Bell and Kenny Pirog, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's true. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. Twill be my delight. To sing again, bring again the things you want me to. I love to spend each Sunday with you. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The Washington region is an expensive place to live. You need over $100,000 a year to live comfortably as a family of four. Making that much or even making rent can be tough or impossible. Working all of these hours and getting this wage and trying to piece money together, check to check, it's ridiculous. This year, the Affordability Desk from WAMU is working on ways to help you understand and navigate our region's high cost of living. Find out more at wamu.org slash affordability. 